Schuster Audio presents A Pinch of Magic by Michelle Harrison, read by Nikki Diss. Prologue. The prisoner gazed out of her window. It was one of four in Crowstone Tower, the tall stone cage in which she was being held. Here, if she kept her eyes up, she could pretend that the prison walls far below did not exist, and that she was looking upon the world from a castle, or perhaps a mountain. But today she was done with make-believe, pretending she was in a dream, pretending someone was going to save her. The girl wrapped her arms more tightly around herself, against the cruel wind that whipped through the bare windows. It smelled of the marshes, briny with a whiff of fish. The tide was out, leaving only a vast expanse of mudflats stretching before her. In places she could see gulls pecking at stranded fish, tussocks of marsh grass and a battered, abandoned rowing boat. A tendril of her long, tawny hair flew in between her lips. She tugged it free, tasting salt, and leaned over the cold, scratched stone sill as far as she dared. The windows were not barred. They didn't need to be. The height of the tower was deterrent enough. The noise of the crows circling outside was constant. At first she had thought of the birds as friends, chattering to keep her company. Sometimes one would land on the sill, pecking, watching, unblinking. The cause began to sound less friendly, accusing, mocking. Marsh witch, the crows seemed to croak in the voices of the villagers. Came in off the marshes, she did, killing three of our own. She had never meant to hurt anyone. The scratches in the stone stretched the length of the windowsill, one for each day she had been imprisoned. Once she had known how many there were, but she no longer counted. She walked a lap of the circular tower room, tracing her fingers over the stone. There were more scratches in the wall's surface, some shaped into angry words, others deep gouges where she had thrown things, chipping away, but never breaking free. A pale red moon had appeared in the sky yesterday, which had set all the warders' tongues wagging. The moon being visible in daylight was a bad omen at any time, but a red moon was worse still. A red moon was a blood moon, a sign that wrongdoing was afoot. The girl explored the rough stones until she found the small gap in the mortar which she had discovered when she hadn't long been in the tower, assessing the walls for possible footholds, when she had still had hopes of escaping. In the crevice, she had wedged a broken chunk of stone hidden from the prison warders. It was too small to be used as a weapon, but the warders would no doubt confiscate it if they knew about it. She worked the stone loose and held it in her palm, hardly recognising her own hand. Her once brown skin was dirty and grey, her nails ragged. Using the stone, she scratched on the inside walls as if she were writing with chalk. She wrote out a single word, a name, the one who had wronged her. With each letter she focused, thinking dark thoughts before letting the stone fall from her fingers. She didn't need it anymore. This was the last thing she would write. 
She stared across at Crowstone. At high noon, a boat was to take her across the water to the crossroads. There the gallows were being prepared at this very moment. It would be her first and last journey to the mainland. Her last journey anywhere. It was there she was to be executed. She wondered how the warders felt about transporting a supposed witch across the marshes. She would be shackled in irons, of course, which reputedly rendered witches powerless, but even the most fearless warder would be unsettled to be near her once she was out of the tower, especially under a blood moon. Her eyes drifted to the marshes, where it had all begun on a little boat one stormy night, where three lives had been lost. I never meant to hurt anyone, she whispered, gripping the sill with numb fingers. It was true. She hadn't wanted to cause anyone harm then, but now revenge was all she could think of. And she would have it, even though she knew it would not save her. Chapter One Trick or Treat Betty Widdershins first learned of the family curse on the night of her birthday. It was her thirteenth, a number considered unlucky by some, but Betty was too practical to believe in all that. She liked to think she was too practical to believe in most superstitious nonsense, despite having grown up surrounded by it. It was a Saturday, always a busy night in Betty's home, which was the village inn. The poacher's pocket was the rowdiest place on the Isle of Crowstone and had been in the Widdishans' family for generations. It now belonged to her granny, also named Betty, but whom everyone called Bunny to avoid confusion. They lived there with Betty's sisters Felicity, known as Fliss, who was the eldest, and six-year-old Charlotte, who would only answer to Charlie. Betty's birthday also happened to fall on Halloween. As she and Charlie galloped downstairs, their trick-or-treat costumes billowed behind them in a satisfying, villainous way. In fact, the outfit was helping Betty to feel rather daring, which she was glad of, as she and Charlie were about to break Granny's biggest rule. Only Charlie didn't know it yet. As they threw open the door to the lounge bar, warm, beer-scented air hit Betty's nostrils through the holes in her skeleton mask. She picked up Granny's favourite horseshoe, which had clattered to the floor, and placed it back above the doorframe. Charlie did her best witch's cackle to announce their entrance and swished her cape. Grabbing Granny's broomstick from the corner, she began dancing round the scuffed tables and mismatched chairs, chanting as her eyes sparkled in her painted green face. Trick or treat, trick or treat, the marshes are misty and sugar is sweet. She twirled and hopped like an imp as the regulars looked on in amusement. Careful, Charlie, Betty called, eyeing her sister's cape near the crackling fires. She had lit them earlier after she and Charlie had carved pumpkins into jack-o'-lanterns. She adjusted her long black cloak and motioned impatiently to Granny, who was wiping down the bar. We're off now, Granny, she said, thankful her face was hidden. She had been planning this evening for weeks, feeling only excitement, but now that it had come to carrying it out, she couldn't quite believe her own disobedience. She hoped her grandmother would put the tremor in her voice down to excitement and not the nerves that were buzzing inside her like marsh midges. Granny stamped over. She stamped everywhere instead of walking, slammed doors instead of closing them, and mostly shouted rather than talked, 
Off out scrounging, she said, blowing grey hair out of her face. It's trick or treating, Betty corrected, and everyone does it. Granny tutted. I'm well aware of what everyone does, thank you, and it looks like scrounging to me when you could be useful here. I've been useful all day, Betty muttered snippily. Under the hot mask, her bushy hair itched against her neck. So much for birthdays. Granny snorted. Birthday or not, all the Widdershins had to help run the place, even Charlie. Only go around the green, Granny ordered. No further, do you hear? And I want you back by... Supper time, Betty finished. I know. My mind you are. Remember what happened last year? Granny's voice softened. There's birthday cake for later. Ooh, said Charlie, pausing her imp dance at the mention of food. Betty caught Fliss's eye as Granny was called away to serve a customer. Are you sure you won't come with us? Betty asked, a note of pleading entering her voice. It had always been such fun, the three of them getting into their Halloween costumes each year. It won't be the same without you. Fliss shook her head, her dark, glossy hair swishing over her shoulders. There was a faint smear of green on her perfect, upturned nose from where she had painted Charlie's face earlier. I'm too old for all that. Besides, I'm needed here. Or maybe you don't want to miss Will Turner coming in, Betty joked. Or is it Jack Humble this week? Who's getting the Fliss kiss? I can't keep up. Flit! Fliss glared. I've told you not to call me that. Betty rolled her eyes, deciding to keep quiet about the paint on her sister's nose. Since her birthday, Fliss hadn't been herself. She was quiet, even moody at times, and clammed up every time Betty asked what was troubling her. Betty, Fliss said, glancing warily at Granny, you will stay by the green, won't you? Under her mask, Betty gulped. She crossed her fingers within the folds of her cloak and fibbed. Yes, we'll stay by the green. Fliss's expression was unreadable as she gazed past Betty to the window. It's best you stay close anyway. It's looking a bit foggy out there. Taking a ferry over the marshes could be dangerous. She turned away to serve as a hoity-toity regular named Queenie rapped on the counter impatiently. Betty rolled her eyes at her sister's back. Mustn't do this, can't do that, she muttered under her breath. What had happened to Fliss since her birthday? True, she was as vain as she'd always been, often staring broodily into an old mermaid mirror Granny had given her, but all her fun had been blown away with the candles on her cake. In fact, she had started sounding exactly like Granny. Increasingly, Betty felt as though her life at the poacher's pocket was a corset tightening around her, with Granny pulling one string and now Fliss yanking the other, lacing her in so she couldn't breathe. Tonight, Betty was determined to cut those strings, if only for a little while. She called to Charlie, who had interrupted a domino game to proudly show off the gap where her front teeth had fallen out. Together, Betty and Charlie headed for the doors, weaving past tables of familiar faces that Betty knew as well as her own. They were almost at the door when Charlie's foot tangled in Betty's cloak and she tripped, bumping into a table where a sour-faced fellow named Fingerty sat alone. 
He made an unfriendly noise between a grunt and a growl, scowling as his drink slopped against the side of the glass. Sorry, Betty mumbled, hurrying past. Icy air snaked round her ankles as she and Charlie squeezed past more customers who were piling inside. Then they were out into the freezing night. But oh, what a night! Freedom! Or at least it would be once they were firmly on the ferry in a few minutes' time. Betty silently cheered, shivering as much from anticipation as from the cold. She felt a flutter of anxiety too. Fliss had been right. It was looking a little misty out here. As far as Betty knew, for she had been checking, there was no fog forecast. Yet she also knew the marshes were unpredictable and that sometimes the forecasts were wrong. Charlie's breath came in white puffs as she ran ahead, shaking her empty cauldron, the cold not bothering her. Betty strode after her, her eyes sweeping nesty nook green. There were a few costumed people going from door to door, and she counted five pumpkins glowing on doorsteps. Most of the houses, however, were in darkness. Many people had no wish to be disturbed by masked strangers, for good reason. Last year, the Halloween fun had been cut short when the bell of Crowstone had started clanging. It was an alarm and meant that across the marshes the prison beacons had been lit, signifying danger. Calls of trick or treat had been replaced with cries of prisoners on the loose. Everyone inside, lock your doors. Betty and her sisters had raced back to the poacher's pocket and sat upstairs, their noses pressed up to Betty's window. While Fliss nervously chewed her nails and Charlie complained about losing out on sweets, Betty had fizzled with excitement, secretly hoping the prisoners might stay on the run for a few days, just to shake Crowstone up a bit. Escapes were rare, and growing up in the prison's shadow meant they could almost forget how close it was and how dangerous it might be. The girls had watched and waited, but apart from two prison warders searching with lanterns, they saw no one. By breakfast, the excitement was over, for they'd heard the felons had been caught on the marshes. Betty had always followed any tales of escape with interest, as she sometimes felt like a prisoner herself. Unfortunately, the story of inmates on the loose had been added to Granny's collection of excuses, which prevented the girls from wandering too far. Snapping back to the present, Betty glanced back at the poacher's pocket. Fliss had once described it as a knackered old racing pigeon, with its loose tiles and shutters flapping like raggedy feathers. It perched at the edge of Nesty Nook Green, its weathered bricks a patchwork of the years gone by. Time had nudged it like an elbow, and now the whole building slumped drunkenly to the left. The light from the windows glowed amber, broken by moving figures within, and a few hagstones and other lucky charms Granny had strung up. No one was outside. No one suspected. Good. The possibility of being hauled back by an enraged Granny was both scary and humiliating. Sure, Granny had a foul temper, but it was the consequences Betty feared most. If Granny found out what Betty had planned, she would never let her take Charlie out alone again, and any chance of adventure would vanish. The corset laces would tighten, squeezing the life out of her. Already Charlie had knocked at the first house, chorusing, Trick or treat! before sweets were popped into her cauldron. She skipped back to Betty, unwrapping a sticky-beaked toffee from Hubbard's the sweet shop. 
Didn't you bring anything to put your treats in? Nah, I'll just pinch a couple of yours, said Betty, poking through the cauldron until she found her favourite, a marshmallow. A plume of powdered sugar wafted off it as she stuffed it into her mouth, crunching through the wafer shell into the whipped centre. She checked the clock on the craggy old church as they neared the lane beside it. Seven minutes. Under the mask, her temples prickled with sweat and her pulse began to race. We can't get caught, not now, not when we're this close. With another glance back at the inn, she took Charlie's sleeve and urged her towards the lane. This way, I've got a surprise for you. A surprise? Charlie looked up at her wide-eyed. But you told Granny we were only going round the green. You said... I know what I said. Betty shepherded Charlie in front. But you and I are about to have a little adventure, which is why I need you to keep this our secret. Can you do that? Charlie gave a mischievous, gappy grin between chews. She nodded, her pigtails bobbing. What kind of adventure? We're going to Marshfoot. Jumping jackdaws! Charlie's huge green eyes suddenly looked even huger. Marshfoot? But that's... that's on the ferry. Yes, it is. Betty patted her pocket, feeling the weight of three coins there. It had taken her weeks to scrape together the return ferry fare, at a cost of a silver raven each. She had managed it by saving the small amount of pocket money Granny allowed them, as well as whatever she came across when sweeping the floor of the poacher's pocket. She'd hoarded every coin, rooks and feathers. They'd all added up, and now that Fliss wasn't coming, there was money to spare. But Betty, we'll get caught. Not this time. That's what you always say before something goes wrong. Charlie had a point here, but Betty wasn't to be deterred. I've got it all figured out. She was so confident that she had even thought up a new motto, but she was saving that. What if Granny finds out? Charlie whispered, half gleeful and half afraid. We'd be in for it then. She won't, said Betty. Why do you think I chose tonight? Everyone's going to be dressed up or wearing masks. It's perfect. If no one knows it's us, no one can rat on us to Granny. What's in Marshfoot? Charlie asked. Bigger houses, more sweets. Better than that. Betty shooed Charlie further down the darkened lane. There's a fairground, bobbing apples and soul cakes and a prize for the best costume and candy floss. An adventure, she added in silent defiance. She didn't care where they escaped to, as long as it was out of Crowstone. Marshfoot was both far enough to feel satisfyingly daring and new and close enough to get away with it. Sneaking off to the unknown like this felt like scratching an itch that had been there all her life. Candy floss, Charlie breathed. Since she'd lost her front teeth, her sweet little voice had a slight lisp to it. She slipped a hot, sticky hand into Betty's. But it's so far away. What if we don't make it back in time for cake? We'll easily make it back said Betty. I've got it all planned, and they're not going to eat my birthday cake without me. But hurry, we've only got a few minutes before the ferry leaves. They slipped further down the lane, rounding the corner. Beneath the mask, Betty grinned triumphantly, her heart racing. They were really going to do it. They would finally get to see what life beyond Crowstone was like, and all because of her.
Bessie loosened the cloak round her neck, and they started to run. Beside her, Charlie counted glowing jack-o'-lanterns and carved turnips in windows, pointing out one she had made yesterday which was on the school steps. They followed them along the cobbled streets like wraiths leading them to the misty marshes. Soon the houses became fewer, and then the crossroads were in sight, and there were no houses at all. Instead, some distance away across the marshes, rows of tiny prison cell windows glowed yellow, like watchful eyes in the blackness. Rising even higher, another light flickered from a solitary tower that loomed over the rest of the building. Charlie slowed to a walk, and they sidestepped to allow a couple of people hurrying for the ferry to pass. How long has Father been in there now? she asked. Charlie, Betty scolded, hoping those in front hadn't heard. She lowered her voice. Two years, eight months. She paused, rummaging through dates in her head. And four days. How long till he gets out? Betty sighed, feeling a familiar mixture of emotions at the thought of their father. Sadness, frustration, disappointment. Like their mother's death, his absence had hit Betty and Fliss harder than it had Charlie. Even if Barney Widdishins was, in Granny's own words, a useless tow-rag, Betty couldn't help but feel some sort of loyalty towards him. He wasn't much of a father, but he was the only one they had. Two years, three months, and twenty-six days, she answered finally. Why are you whispering? Charlie asked. She had been only three when their father was taken away, and the lack of contact since meant she had never been close to him, merely curious. You're always telling Fliss there ain't no point getting embarrassed about him being in there. Embarrassed, Betty corrected. If they lived anywhere else, she would squirm about it, but almost everyone who lived near the prison did so because they were related to someone on the inside. No, there isn't. But don't blab about personal stuff when we're meant to be undercover. You never know who's listening. Now get a move on. I can see the ferry waiting. Oh! Charlie grinned and pulled her witch's hat lower on her head, clearly enjoying being up to no good. Betty ran ahead, with Charlie scampering behind, her gaze fixed on the prison. Which cell was her father's? From here, it was impossible to tell. Prisoners often moved. He might not even be in the same cell now, not that Betty would know. It was six months since Granny had last taken Fliss and Betty with her to visit. Apparently their father had claimed he was too miserable and ashamed to see his daughters, or even respond to their letters. Betty glared at the prison. He should have thought of that before he got himself pinched. She gave the prison a last scowl before looking away, determined not to let her father ruin tonight, like he ruined everything else. They reached the ferry, running the last few steps. Evidently, the fog warning hadn't changed for the worse, as the ferryman appeared unconcerned about the wispy mist that was wreathing around the boat. There were a handful of costumed people on it already, who also appeared to be heading for the Halloween fair. Betty paid their fares, then squeezed onto the narrow seat next to Charlie. She glanced gleefully back the way they had come. Had they really got away with it? It had been so easy. Still, she tapped her toe impatiently until the ferryman pushed off, and then they were gliding over the water. 
Adventure awaits the audacious, Betty whispered in excitement. It was the first time she had spoken her new motto aloud, and she had been dying to say it all day. Charlie was unimpressed. What colour candy floss do you think they'll have? Green, perhaps? Or orange? Betty trailed off, staring back to shore. A little way along from the ferry was the harbour. Somewhere among the other boats was their own, a ramshackle ensemble of rotting wood that their father had won in a bet and had been trying to fix up ever since without success. Perhaps he never would. For once, Betty didn't care. She didn't need father or his boat for adventures. Here on the marshes by night, she wasn't just the middle Widdishan sister, plain and blunt against Fliss's prettiness and charm, and sensible next to Charlie's cuteness and mischief. Here, she was Betty the Brave, Betty the Explorer. She could go anywhere, do anything. Everything looked different, more eerie and mysterious, and in the distance she could see strange flickering lights, like magical orbs hovering over the water's surface. People called them Will-o'-the-Wisps. Some said they were the souls of those who died on the marshes. Others believed they were mischievous sprites trying to lead travellers astray. She stared towards the prison. They would pass this first, located on the island of Repent, which was one of three nearby craggy islands on the marshes. The second, smaller island was known as Lament, where all of Crowstone's dead were buried. Betty had been there only twice, most recently when her mother died shortly after Charlie had been born. A pang of sadness crept over her at the memory, still raw even now. The final island was called Torment. It was out of bounds for those who lived on mainland Crowstone. Those on Torment had been exiled, people who had been released from the prison but still had punishment to serve by not being allowed to return to the mainland, or those who had committed crimes not serious enough to be locked away for, but enough to warrant being banished. Collectively, the three places were still part of Crowstone and were known as the Sorrow Isles. Along with mainland Crowstone, they were all the girls had ever known and the farthest any of them had ever travelled. Tonight... After all Betty's longing, that was about to change. It was her birthday gift to herself, she decided, a step towards the life she wanted, one of opportunities and adventure, one where she could have golden sand crusted under her fingernails instead of coal dust. The boat had not gone far when Betty became aware that something was happening. The misty marshes were living up to their name. The prison's lights had vanished. Instead, all that could be seen was thick, swirling grey mist, and it was curling around them, chilling their bones. Her scalp prickled with dread. A mother sitting opposite drew her small son closer, muttering in concern. Betty. Charlie tugged at her sleeve. What if the boat gets lost, or we can't find our way back from Marshfoot? Betty swallowed. Granny had used many excuses over the years to avoid taking the girls too far, and now those warnings came flooding back. We could miss the return ferry. Lost boats have struck rocks and sunk into the marshes. People say there's still slavers in these parts, just waiting to snatch people away and sell them. Suddenly, 
She didn't feel so smart or brave. She felt rather silly and worried. It's getting hard to see, the lady with the young boy called to the ferryman. Aye, he grunted. May just be a pocket. If it don't clear in a minute, we'll have to turn back. Charlie's bottom lip wobbled. But, but my candy floss... Betty didn't answer, fighting to appear calm for her sister's sake. Perhaps Granny hadn't been too cautious. Perhaps she was right to be afraid. The temperature plummeted as thick, freezing fog wrapped around the boat, frighteningly fast. This wasn't a pocket. It was all around them. The ferryman stopped rowing, lifting his lantern. Betty felt Charlie's small hands reaching for her, she wrapped an arm round her sister's shoulders and lifted her free hand in front of her face. It was almost touching her nose before she could see it. A huge bump shook the boat. There were screams and gasps as it rocked dangerously on the water. What was happening? Charlie's voice was high-pitched with fear. Her fingers dug into Betty's arm painfully. I don't know, Betty gasped, clutching the side of the boat. Freezing water slopped up her elbow. Did we hit a rock? I want to go home, Charlie wailed, all thoughts of candy floss forgotten. The boat lurched again as a familiar figure loomed over the two girls. Betty gave a squeak of surprise as someone pushed their face to hers, almost nose to nose. Good, said Granny, because home is exactly where we're going. Chapter Two Prisoners. Betty sat rigid with shock and confusion. Next to her, Charlie was also frozen, her hand clamped round Betty's arm. Bunny hadn't been on the boat when they'd left. Betty was convinced of it, but now she had doubts. Could Granny have disguised herself? It was impossible that she could have boarded without them seeing her otherwise. But then why would she let the boat leave? It made no sense. Granny? Betty whispered. Already through the folds of her disbelief, she knew what this meant. Any future glimmers of freedom were in tatters, as impossible to grab as the swirling mist. How did you... Where did you come from? Never you mind. Granny glowered down at her. She looked half mad, with her grey hair flying loose from its bun and her shabby coat and shawl and Wellington boots horribly mismatched. Worse still, Granny had brought the ugly old carpet bag she insisted on carrying everywhere, though goodness knew why. Betty began to feel grateful for the fog. It was at least a screen against curious eyes. Clearly, the only things that awaited her audaciousness were embarrassment and confusion, not adventure. She needed a new motto. Return this boat, Granny demanded. We're getting off. That's what I'm trying to do, the ferryman snapped, not looking up from the windrows he was bent over. Other passengers squinted, their eyes flickering over what they could see of Granny's strange appearance as though they were trying to work out what kind of Halloween costume this was. Betty cringed. Hurry up, please, Granny repeated loudly. This is no place for children. You're the one who brought them, the ferryman said, annoyed. Then he frowned. Although, come to think of it, I never saw you get on. Nonsense. I've been here all along. 
But she can't have been, Betty thought, bewildered, or she would have said something sooner. She bit back a frustrated growl, all that sneaking about an effort for nothing. She didn't feel like a big adventurer now. She felt like a silly little girl, and the worst of it was there was a tiny part of her that was relieved, because in those misty moments before Granny had appeared, Betty had been scared. But Granny, Charlie whispered, you haven't. Shush, said Granny in a not at all quiet voice. The ferryman peered closer at Bunny. I remember the girls getting on, but not you. You didn't pay your fare. I most certainly did. Granny's voice cooled a few degrees. Or do you suppose that I swam out here fully clothed and boarded the boat still dry by some miracle? She narrowed her eyes. And don't get lippy with me, young man. I know your father. The ferryman looked more alarmed about this than he did about the fog. He's in for it now, Charlie said in a small voice. No, Granny snapped. You two are in for it when you get home, and this time you'll be getting more than you bargained for. Betty gulped. She should have known better than to try and trick Granny. After all, she'd never managed to before, and now some other unpleasant thing was in store to add to her already ruined birthday. What's that supposed to mean? Granny didn't answer. Instead, she said to the ferryman in an even sterner voice, Now, I suggest you stop quibbling and get these cold, damp people back to safety. I expect many of them will want to know why the ferry was permitted to leave in the first place, if a fog was expected. But it wasn't, the ferryman objected. Then you must be terribly inexperienced, Granny said coldly, or too fond of money. She looked away pointedly. The ferryman stopped protesting, and after consulting the windrows once more, began rowing meekly. No one said a word for the entire journey back to shore, but Betty could feel the tension building in Granny. She might be silent now, but there was no mistaking that once they were off the boat, she would have plenty to say. But so did Betty. Something extraordinary had just happened, and neither Granny's temper nor her punishment was going to stop Betty asking questions. Just how had Granny got on that boat? True, she had always possessed an uncanny knack for tracking the girls down. If they spent too long on an errand, or wandered further than they should while out mushroom-picking, it was a running joke that Granny would pop up like a sniffer dog. But this time, Betty found nothing funny or logical about it. Instead, she felt a creeping sense of uneasiness. When they docked, Betty and Charlie were shivering, both from the freezing air nipping at their ankles and from the shock of being caught. Granny looked the opposite, hot and cross and a bit dragon-like, with her breath coming in quick bursts that misted the air. She made them wait until everyone else had got off before they clambered ashore and headed for the lanes leading to the poacher's pocket. Betty looked back at the misty marshes. Sometimes the fog would come all the way up onto the land, wreathing its way through the streets. Tonight, however, the fog stayed at the fringes of the water, hovering like a marsh creature protecting its lair. When she was certain the other passengers were gone and the Widdershins were alone, Betty spoke. 
How did you do that, Granny? How did you get on that boat without us seeing you? It's not possible. I was on it the whole time, Granny answered shortly, but you were so caught up in your little adventure you didn't see me. Betty stared, trying to read Granny's face. All she saw there was anger, something which normally stopped her from asking too many questions or answering back. But tonight wasn't normal. Her hopes and plans had all been dashed. She had nothing else to lose by saying what she really thought, even at the risk of being punished with extra chores. I don't believe you. You wouldn't have waited all that time before saying something to us. I wanted to see if you'd actually do it, Granny snapped, but she still didn't quite sound truthful. Or whether you'd come to your senses and turn back. Come to my senses? Betty's face grew hotter as her temper rose. Or perhaps it was the sting from Granny's harsh words. Bringing Charlie out here like this was stupid and irresponsible. Anything could have happened. Exactly, Betty muttered. She ignored the prickle of shame, unable to hold her tongue now she had begun. We might have even had some fun. Granny ignored her, pulling her shawl tighter around her. She jabbed a finger between Betty's shoulders, prodding her along the lane. I thought I could count on you, Betty Widdershins. I thought you could be trusted, but it looks like I was wrong. That's not fair. Betty's voice rose, carrying through the night. All right, I shouldn't have gone behind your back, but come on, Granny, wanting a bit of freedom, that's not a crime, and you know I'd never let Charlie come to harm. I know that's what you think, Granny cut in, but you're 13 years old. You know nothing of the world. There's plenty out there that could harm you, things you don't know about. I never will if you don't let me. Betty spoke quietly now, but with as much defiance as she dared. Granny's fierceness was normally enough to stop her answering back, as well as a feeling of not wanting to be a bigger burden than they already were. But enough was enough. She waited for her grandmother to protest, to make the usual promises about taking the girls on trips or holidays. But this time, Granny didn't. She looked terribly tired then, and even older than usual. A guilty, worried lump rose in Betty's throat. Granny was, after all, the one who had looked out for Betty and her sisters. If she hadn't been there to take them in, the girls would have ended up in the orphanage, or worse, split up and rehomed with strangers. She pushed the thought away. Being grateful shouldn't stop her from getting some answers. You say you can't trust me now, but you never have. Not to go out of Crowstone, anyway. Granny stamped over the cobbles. Leave it, Betty. This isn't the time or the place. She set off at a pace, one hand clutching her shawl and the other carrying the travelling bag. Betty grabbed Charlie's hand and hurried after Granny, determined not to be brushed off so easily. How did you find out? The flyer, Granny said shortly. Betty closed her eyes in dismay. Earlier that day, Fliss had seen a hidden flyer fall out of Betty's cloak and had picked it up, frowning. What's this? A Halloween fair in Marshfoot? Oh, Betty had said, her heartbeat quickening. I asked if we could go, but Granny said no, of course. Of course, Fliss had echoed, holding the flyer a fraction too long before handing it back. Fliss snitched on us then. Betty fumed. Or did she just leave it for you to find? 
Granny avoided the question, pausing to hitch up her stocking. It's lucky you didn't cover your tracks more carefully. Lucky? Betty stopped in the middle of the road. Lucky was the last thing she felt after having her adventure snatched away. Why didn't Fliss want to escape the everyday drudgery or care about Granny controlling them anymore? Granny halted up ahead. Stop dawdling, she scolded. Come on, Betty, Charlie begged. I'm cold. Betty released her sister's hand, her own slowly forming a fist at her side. Keeping the Halloween fair flyer had been careless, and now it would be harder than ever to plan any secret trips, with Granny watching her every move. But plan she would, and next time it would be flawless. Heck, next time she might not come back at all. Footsteps cut across the silence, and then Granny was in front of her. Stop sulking, and I don't want any trouble when you get back. None of this is Fliss's fault. No, Betty uncurled her fists. It's yours. I beg your pardon, Granny said. Her voice was dangerously low, but still Betty persisted. All her pent-up resentment and frustration, all the times she'd been told to stay close to home, the way Fliss had shut her out recently, it all came pouring out. Fliss used to want to explore as much as I do, said Betty. She pulled the mask off, cold air hitting her cheeks. She used to plan all the places she was going to visit, but not anymore. She's 16. She should be allowed to go wherever she wants, but she's given up because of you. All of a sudden, Granny seemed to shrink in her baggy clothes as the anger went out of her. That's not fair. No, it's not. Tears pricked Betty's eyes. All your stories and what-ifs have stopped Fliss from trying. You've squashed the adventure out of her. I won't let that happen to me or to Charlie. Granny shook her head, a strand of hair unravelling like Granny herself was coming undone. It's not like that. Then explain, said Betty, hardly believing the words that were leaking out of her. Why all the broken promises and excuses? You act so tough, but maybe you're the one who's too scared to leave. Granny lowered her eyes, unable to meet Betty's. We've been out of Crowstone plenty of times. You were just too young to remember. I don't believe you, Betty said. Her voice hardened as she became more certain. Now she really thought about it. There had always been something odd about Granny's reluctance to let them go anywhere, and her hold only seemed to tighten as the girls got older. It felt all wrong. I'd remember, and wouldn't there be pictures, memories of special days out? There's nothing. Granny didn't answer. Betty, Charlie whispered, please stop it. I want to go home. Why? Betty said bitterly. What's the big rush? Home is all there ever is. She jabbed a finger in the direction of the prison. We're no better off than the prisoners in there. She glanced round at the crooked little streets, hating them. And it might not be tonight, but I'll escape this place. There's more to life than Crowstone. No, there isn't. Granny's eyes were haunted. There's no leaving this place. Not for us. Her words dangled in the air like sharp little needles. Charlie began to cry. Not for us, Betty echoed. Surely Granny was just trying to scare them again. How could they not be able to leave? 
You think you're ready for the truth? Granny asked sadly. Betty stared back helplessly. She wasn't sure. Not now Granny was as good as admitting that Betty had been right all along. But all she could do was nod. Very well. Granny nodded slowly. I'll tell you. No more secrets. She shuffled closer, resting her hand on Betty's cheek. But I warn you, it's nothing good. Charlie huddled closer into her, crying harder. Betty's mouth went dry. Was this linked to their ratbag father somehow? Were they being punished along with him, forbidden from leaving like the people on Torment? It was all she could think of. What is it? Tell me. Not here. Granny lowered her hand, her jowls wobbling as she glanced about them. This'll only be a short journey, but I need you both to keep your wits about you. We mustn't be seen. Not seen? Granny, I don't... You don't need to understand. Just hold on. Granny hooked her arm through Betty's, the carpet bag dangling from her wrist. Link your arm with Charlie's. That's it, nice and tight. Whatever you do, don't let go. Betty wondered if she had finally sent her grandmother loopy. Why else would she be acting so peculiar? Granny, you're scaring me. Yes, well, I can't help that. And you were going to find out sooner or later. Granny tightened her hold on Betty's arm. The familiar smell of her, of tobacco and beer, was warming in the chilly air. Ready? For what? Betty asked, bewildered, as Granny opened her bag. Her grandmother didn't answer. Instead, she reached inside the monstrous carpet bag and turned it inside out, saying in a crisp voice, Poacher's pocket! Betty's insides gave an enormous lurch, like she had fallen from a great height. Her ears were popping and her eyes were forced closed as a huge gust of icy air rushed past her, knocking her off her feet. She heard Granny gasp and Charlie do a funny little moan, but kept hold of them both as tightly as she could. Her balance was gone, her feet finding nothing but air. Granny! She wailed, her eyes flying open as she toppled backwards. She landed with a bump, arms still locked with her grandmother and Charlie. Hard cobbles bit into her bottom, and the whistling wind had been replaced with rowdy voices and laughter. Betty looked up in amazement to see that the three of them were sitting in the doorway outside the poacher's pocket. Not one of my better landings, I admit, but I'm not used to passengers. Granny released Betty's arm and got to her feet. Oof, my hips. After dusting herself down, she checked over the carpet bag and then snapped the clasp shut with a nod. Home. Chapter Three, The Three Gifts Up you get, Granny trilled, peering out of the darkened doorway across the empty village green. Good, no one saw us. Stiff with shock, Betty clambered to her feet and hauled Charlie up beside her. They stared at their grandmother. Though Betty was too stunned to speak, her mind was jammed with questions. What in Crow's name had just happened? How is it even possible? And how could Granny be acting so matter-of-fact about it? Next to her, Charlie had stopped crying, but her face was grubby and tear-streaked, her little body trembling. Come on, 
Granny guided them towards the door. Inside, out of the cold. The door opened to warm air, jumbled merry talk and music. Betty stepped in, clasping her arm tightly round Charlie's shoulders. It was dimly lit with the glow of the jack-o'-lanterns turning everything and everyone golden. There were so many people it was difficult to move through them all, but Granny nudged and jostled, clearing a path to the bar, where Fliss and another girl, Gladys, were serving drink after drink. Granny pushed the carpet bag at Betty. Take this up to the kitchen. Put the kettle on. Betty held the bag at arm's length, afraid it would swallow her up and spit her out again in some unknown place. Oh, for crow's sake! Granny snatched it back, tucking it under her arm. She took a glass from the counter and helped herself to a large whisky. Fliss, she called, upstairs. Now? Fliss blurted out in surprise. Now. A look passed between them and Fliss's face became grave. She nodded, wiping her hands on her apron, glancing at Betty. Betty stared back, her gaze dropping to something sticking out of her sister's apron pocket. Fliss hastily tried to poke it back in, but Betty recognised it immediately. It was the corner of the Marshfoot flyer. So Fliss had ratted on them. Yet all that had just happened had cooled Betty's temper, leaving more questions. Did Fliss know what Granny's old carpet bag could really do, as well as the big secret Granny was about to tell them? Little threads of envy knitted together in an unfamiliar pattern. It used to be Betty and Fliss who had shared secrets. Now she was the one being locked out. Where are you going? Gladys shrieked. I'm ankle deep in beer here. I can't manage on my own. We won't be long and I'll double your wages tonight. Granny swallowed the whiskey in a single gulp, then poured herself another. That's not going to help, said Fliss primly. You've never been drunk, so what would you know? Granny snapped, turning to Betty. I thought I told you two to go upstairs. Numbly, Betty placed her hands on Charlie's shoulders and steered her to the stairs. As they climbed them, Betty eyed the peeling wallpaper and threadbare carpet, trying to focus on normal, everyday things. This was their world, not one where smelly old carpet bags transported people. Perhaps there had been snuff powder in the bag, she decided, something that had momentarily befuddled them. It was the only practical explanation. Once in the kitchen, Betty and Charlie sat down at the table, Charlie drew her knees up and peered over them, wide-eyed like a frightened little mouse. Granny pulled out a chair and tutted, shaking a scruffy black cat off it. Scram! she snapped at the hissing creature. The cat hated everyone, but only Charlie persisted in trying to befriend it. It had mysteriously wandered in some months before, though Betty suspected Charlie had enticed it with scraps, and now they couldn't get rid of it. Despite Granny's strict instructions not to name it, brandishing her broom and yelling, Oi! every time it took a swipe at Charlie, the cat always returned and did as it pleased. And thanks to Charlie, it did have a name. Poor Oi, she murmured as the cat skulked away downstairs. Fliss filled the kettle and put it on to boil. Granny sat at the head of the table and took out her pipe, stuffing it with tobacco. A minute later, Fliss put cups of tea in front of them, stirring in mounds of sugar. It's 
good for shock. Doesn't beat whiskey, Granny muttered under her breath. Fliss gave a disapproving sniff, then Charlie burst into sobs. There, there, I know. Granny reached out to pat her arm. You've had a bit of an upset. Have a good cry and get it all out. A bit of an upset? And yet Granny was about to reveal something else, some explanation of why they were trapped in Crowstone. But it had better be good, Betty decided. A real, solid reason to crush her dreams and not just flimsy fears. Charlie continued to cry, her shoulders shaking with huge gasps. Granny, I don't understand what just happened. Are you a, a witch? A witch? Dear me, no, said Granny. But, but your bag. Yes, yes, I know. We started in one place and ended up in another. It's a travelling bag, not a broomstick. And guess what? One day, it'll be yours. This only made Charlie grizzle harder. But how? Betty began, for despite Granny's denial, she couldn't help wondering. Witches were make-believe, weren't they? Or did Granny use more than beer to bamboozle? I don't know. Granny lit her pipe, sucking on it deeply. Thick smoke billowed around her, strongly scented with cloves and spices. I don't know how it works, only that it does. Must you smoke? Fliss chided, moving her chair away. You know it stinks, and we don't like breathing it in. I don't want you breathing it in either, said Granny. It's my smoke. I paid good money for it. The familiar squabble seemed to set Charlie more at ease. Her sobbing reduced to sniffles. Eventually, she reached out and snatched her tea like a mouse taking a piece of cheese back to its hole. Betty gulped her tea, grimacing. It was weak and too sweet, as lousy as everything Fliss attempted in the kitchen. How long have you known, Fliss? You don't exactly seem surprised by all this. A few months. Fliss fiddled with a tiny plait that she'd woven into her hair. Granny told me on my birthday. So Betty hadn't imagined the change in her sister. All this time, Fliss had been hiding things, guarding Granny's secrets. The threads of envy tightened, tangling with feelings of betrayal. Why hadn't either of them trusted her? Granny huffed out another cloud of cloying smoke. There's more. Betty remained silent. She'd thought as much. That... that mirror Granny gave me on my birthday, Fliss continued. It does something too. Charlie peered over her teacup. The mermaid mirror? Betty found she was gripping her cup so tightly it made her knuckles ache. She set it on the table. What does it do? Fliss glanced at Granny, her cheeks flooding red. It... it lets me talk to people who aren't there. Who aren't there? Betty echoed. Before tonight, she would have scoffed at this, before Granny's jiggery-pokery with the carpet bag, that was. Part of her longed to believe this was all an elaborate trick to pay her back for sneaking off, but she knew Granny would never neglect a pub full of thirsty customers, and Fliss was as useless at lying as she was at cooking. Like... like ghosts. Charlie gave an alarmed squawk. No, Fliss said hurriedly, not like that. People who are somewhere else... 
on the other side of the island, perhaps, or even the next room, on one of the Sorrow Isles, or further away. The Sorrow Isles. Immediately, Betty thought of their father. Had Fliss used the mirror to speak to him? She opened her mouth to ask, then changed her mind. Barney Widdershins could wait. Too many other questions about these strange objects were forcing their way to the front of her mind, demanding answers. Betty sipped her tea again. Some of the shock was leaving her, and she was beginning to tremble. There were no such things as magical objects, not outside of dreams and stories. But however practical she was, Betty couldn't deny what she had experienced moments ago, and she knew she wasn't dreaming. How was it possible to travel from one place to another in a few seconds simply by turning an old bag inside out, or to talk to people through looking glasses? There was only one way to describe it. Magic. She remembered other times when she, Fliss and Charlie, had tried to sneak away and been outfoxed by Granny at the last moment, and how Granny never seemed to be late for anything. Now it made sense. Where did they come from? She said at last, the bag and the mirror. Granny puffed on her pipe some more, coughed, then hesitated. I'm not sure exactly. No one is. But they've been in the family for decades. Passed down through generations of Widdershins girls. It's always been that way, for as far back as I know, anyway. How long is that? Betty asked. Granny's mouth puckered as she was thinking. About a hundred and fifty years. And when were you going to tell Charlie and me? Betty added. If you were planning on telling us at all. I was, Granny answered, when you were sixteen, just like I did with Fliss. And you? Charlie asked. Were you sixteen too when you got the bag? No, said Granny. I was given the bag on my wedding day. Of course, Betty thought. Granny wasn't a Widdershins by blood. She had married into the family like the girl's mother. Some wedding gift, she remarked. Granny smiled thinly. I suppose it made up a little for the rest. She hiccuped and cut off, like she'd said something she shouldn't have, but Betty pounced. The rest of what? I'll get to that in a minute. Betty glanced at Fliss, her chest tightening. Whatever it was, she could tell by Fliss's expression that she knew, and it wasn't good. Granny took a break from her pipe to sip at her whiskey. There are three items, three gifts, if you like. Each of them is an everyday object. Each of them holds a different kind of power. I call it a pinch of magic. Fear or excitement or a mixture of both, began to tingle in Betty's tummy. Something about Granny saying the word magic was rather wonderful, and yet Granny's snuffed-out sentence smouldered uneasily in her thoughts. What had this to do with the Widdershins being trapped in Crowstone? Was the magical gift simply a sweetener before something more sinister? She leaned forward. You mean, when Charlie and me turn sixteen, we'll both get one of these... These gifts, too. That was the plan, yes. Betty frowned. Was. After what happened tonight, with the two of you going off like that, I've seen that some plans have to change. 
Oh, Granny, please, Betty said. I know I was wrong to break your rules, and I know I don't deserve whatever magic thing you were saving for me, but please don't punish Charlie. She slumped back in her chair miserably. It's not her fault. It was all my idea. I know. Granny's voice was soft. I don't intend to punish either of you, though. It's never been about that, only about wanting to keep you safe. But tonight, I realise that keeping secrets from you only put you in more danger. And that's the reason I've decided to bring everything out into the open. She placed her pipe in her ashtray, then rose from the table. Wait here. Granny vanished into the hallway. Betty reached for Charlie's hand. It was ice cold. There's nothing to be scared of she told her, although already she wondered if Charlie was ready for this. Guilt gnawed at her, but it was too late for regret now. Whatever was about to happen had been brought on by Betty alone. Still, she couldn't imagine a way Granny could convince her not to leave or make her accept giving up her dreams. Granny returned, carrying a wooden box. It was dark with a curved lid and curling iron embellishments, there was a large padlock on it, and carved into each side of it was a large ornamental W. It looked like exactly the sort of thing that held secrets and excitement or treasure. Yet as Granny unhooked the ring of keys from her belt, Betty felt a tremor of dread. Did one lock opening mean another was about to snap shut around her? Was the price of these objects their freedom? Despite this, she found she was leaning forward as Granny removed the lock and lifted the lid. A musty smell drifted out. Betty peered inside. There was a small package in the box, wrapped in plain brown paper and tied with string. Like I said, Granny said, as the youngest, Charlie will be the last to inherit, so it stands that she'll get the travelling bag from me. This, Betty, is yours, but before you open it, let me tell you that each item will be bound to you and you alone. There's no swapping with each other. Hesitantly, Betty reached for the package. I don't have to accept it, she told herself. Not if it means staying in Crowstone forever. Not even magic was worth that. Even so, she felt a thrill of wonder and anticipation. The item was lighter than expected. She pulled at the string, releasing it from its knot. Wait, said Granny, before you open it, you must all promise to keep these things secret. Do you understand? You're not to tell anyone outside this family about these objects and their powers. You mean, father knows? asked Betty. Granny's expression darkened. Yes, as far as I'm aware, it's the one secret he's managed to keep. I'm surprised said Fliss in a tight voice. I would have thought something as big as this would be the first thing he'd blab about. She struggled to talk about their father much. When he had first gone to prison, it had taken Fliss the longest to accept it. Betty would never forget his arrest. Fliss tearfully insisting it was all a mistake, Granny holding her head in her hands, calling their father terrible names while wondering how she was going to bring up three young girls alone. Even Charlie, too young to understand, had picked up on the mood and eaten twice as much as usual. Betty herself had felt betrayed. 
She couldn't have felt it more if he had rowed them out to sea and abandoned them. How dare he leave them like this, after Mother? Granny sighed. Yes, I thought so too. Still, he proved me wrong, and I'm glad about that. Your father is a fool and a braggart, and that'll never change. But for all his faults, this was a secret he kept, and he did it out of love. You girls remember that. Wasn't it difficult to hide? Betty asked. The magic? Granny shrugged. I hid the bag's magic from you three all this time, didn't I? She fell silent, nodding to the unopened package. Finally, Betty tore off the paper. Inside was a set of wooden nesting dolls, the kind that hid away one inside another, getting smaller and smaller until the last tiny one, which did not open. Using her thumbnail, Betty eased the first doll open and took out the next, then the next, setting them in a line. They were beautifully painted, each one similar and yet different to the next. There were four in total, each with wavy auburn hair and chestnut-brown eyes, so detailed that tiny freckles even dotted their cheeks. Each doll had a circular area at its centre, painted with the same little cottage, meadow and river. With each doll, the season changed. The largest showed blossom on the trees and a clutch of eggs in a nest. The next showed ducklings on the water, and on the third the fully grown birds flying south as russet leaves fell from the trees. The final doll depicted a wintry snow scene painted in pale blues. Each doll held an ornate key, painted and engraved into the wood's surface, in such a way that when the dolls were taken apart, each half had part of its key. They're beautiful. Betty touched the key on the outermost doll with her thumb, I want the dolls, Charlie complained. The bag is ugly. Too bad, said Granny with a shrug. Anyway, it's not what they look like. It's what they do that counts. So what do they do? Betty asked. Granny's expression lightened. Something rather splendid, she whispered, rubbing her hands together and chuckling mischievously. Take something of yours, something small enough to fit inside the second doll. A thrill of anticipation shivered up Betty's back. She glanced at Fliss, but she seemed as puzzled as Betty felt. Clearly, Granny hadn't told her of the doll's powers. Something small, like like a coin. No, no. Granny waved her hand around like an excited wasp buzzing over a jam jar. Something personal. Some small item of jewellery, perhaps. I don't have any jewellery. Ouch! Granny had leaned over and plucked a frizzy brown hair from Betty's head. This'll do. Betty rubbed her scalp and stuffed the hair into the bottom half of the second doll. Now put the top on, said Granny, and this is important, else it won't work. You line up the two halves of the key exactly, then put that into the largest doll and repeat. Betty did so, wondering what on earth was about to happen. As she twisted the two halves of the outer doll together, Fliss gasped and Charlie squealed. Betty frowned. What? Charlie leapt off her chair. Betty, where are you? Nowhere, said Betty, confused. I'm still here. But neither her sisters nor Granny were looking at her anymore. Granny, what's happening? You've disappeared, 
said Granny with a cackle. None of us can see you. Disappeared? Don't talk marsh rot. Look in the mirror if you don't believe me. Betty turned to the small looking glass on the wall. As usual, it was covered in Fliss's fingerprints. What wasn't usual was that only the kitchen behind Betty was reflected there. Betty herself was nowhere to be seen. She had vanished. Chapter 4 By Sunset Stunned, Betty lifted her hands in front of her face. She could see them, but the mirror showed nothing, and it was plain no one else could see her either. To be certain, she made a rude gesture at Granny, but her grandmother continued to stare straight through her. A gleeful thrill bubbled inside her. She grabbed a tea towel from the back of a chair, flapping it. In the mirror, she saw it reflected, flying through the air as though it had a will of its own. Ooh, she said in a deep voice. Ooh, said Charlie, evidently thrilled. Fliss shuddered. Betty, stop that. It's creepy. Oh, don't be a spoil sport, said Betty. It's about time there was some fun around here. It's not a laughing matter, Granny said. These aren't toys to play with. The tea towels slipped through Betty's fingers and landed on the floor. Then what's the point of them? They're for protection, to help us out in a sticky spot. Not likely to get much use then, Betty said sulkily. The only sticky spots around here are when Fliss hasn't washed the dishes properly. Hey, said Fliss indignantly. Or when Oi gets shut in all night added Charlie. How do I make myself visible again? Betty asked. Just take the hair out of the doll. Not quite, said Granny. You twist the top half full circle counterclockwise, then pull them apart and remove the hair. Betty did so, checking her reflection. Sure enough, it returned. Now, said Granny, you can also make other people vanish too. You do exactly the same thing, only this time you use the third doll. Remember that. The second doll is for you and only you. Me! Charlie begged. Make me disappear! She reached into her pocket and dug out something tiny and white, flinging it across the table. Here, use Peg! Meddling magpies! Fliss exclaimed. Are you still carrying that tooth around? And since when does it have a name? Charlie flashed her gappy grin proudly. Since losing her first tooth and waking to find a bright copper rook under her pillow the next morning, she had decided to carry her second offering in her pocket at all times, in the hopes of catching the tooth fairy. It had been three weeks now, and neither Granny nor Fliss had managed to extract it from her pocket without raising suspicion. Charlie was becoming frustrated with the tooth fairy's apparent lack of effort, and had even taken to leaving disgruntled notes to illustrate her feelings. Betty picked up the tooth and placed it in the third doll, twisting it closed before placing it into the outer dolls. Instantly, Charlie vanished from sight. Am I invisible yet? Am I? Charlie demanded. Well and truly. Betty reached out, expecting to find air, but her fingers came into contact with warm flesh. Ah, yes, said Granny. While you can't be seen, you can be felt. Betty removed the tooth, much to Charlie's disappointment, and hid the dolls away inside each other. Charlie pouted jealously. Why does Betty...
Betty get the dolls. She's the one who wants to go on adventures. The bag would be better for her. The bag's just as good, Charlie, Betty pointed out. Better than the dolls, actually. It would have been perfect for her, she realised wistfully. How easily it could whisk her away to anywhere she chose and back again before Granny could stop her. However, the dolls could be just as useful for sneaking off unseen. The thought was as guilty as it was delicious. She still had the feeling that Granny was hoping the magical gifts would buy their obedience, and here Betty was dreaming up ways to be anything but. Don't care, Charlie went on sulkily. I want them because they're like us. She pointed to the largest doll. See, that one is Granny, looking after the three smaller ones. Yes, said Fliss, smiling faintly. I suppose they are like us. The dolls go to Betty, said Granny. Fliss had already chosen the mirror and, until you're old enough, Charlie, the bag will stay with me. Each item goes to a Widdershins girl on their 16th birthday or, like myself and your mother, on their wedding day. She ran a finger around the rim of her glass. Once an item is yours or meant for you, it's the only one you'll be able to use. Charlie looked up, suddenly less huffy. Does that mean... The bag would work for me now. All three girls looked at Granny expectantly, and Betty got the impression from the way her mouth was puckering that she didn't want to answer the question. Yes, Granny said at last. It would, but that doesn't mean you can try, not until you're sixteen. Sixteen? Charlie spluttered. That's not fair. Betty's only thirteen and she's getting the dolls now. Granny closed her eyes, looking pained. All right, thirteen. You can have it then. Yes, said Charlie. She counted on her fingers, her expression growing glum. That's still an awful long time. Not as long as it could have been, so don't push your luck. So all this time, said Betty, who had been thinking during Charlie's little bout of bartering, only the bag has had an owner. What about the mirror and the dolls? How long have they been waiting for another Widdershins girl? A while. Granny struck a match and relit her pipe. I never had any daughters, only your father, as you know. But he had a cousin, Clarissa. The mirror went to her. She died shortly after your parents were married, before any of you were born. Granny gestured to the old wooden box, her eyes dark and distant. And so the mirror went back in there to wait for its next owner. What about Mother? Betty asked. You said she would have got one of these on her wedding day. Granny nodded. The dolls. Though, as far as I know, she never used them. Why not? asked Fliss. She never had reason to, Granny replied. She was warned, same as all the women before her, not to use them flippantly. And she didn't like them, not knowing where they came from or how we got them. No one knows, Betty asked faintly. A haunted look passed across Granny's face. Once again, Betty got the feeling the old woman wasn't being entirely truthful. If they do, they've chosen not to say. The kitchen went quiet, so quiet that the ticking of the old jackdaw clock on the wall could be heard. Betty eyed the dolls uneasily. There was something spooky about enchanted family objects being passed down, which no one had answers for. 
but the lure of them was almost too much to resist. All this magic, she said wistfully, and you're saying we shouldn't use it. I'm saying, said Granny, that it's meant for times of need, not to amuse yourself with parlour tricks. Why would we need it? Betty asked. You never know, Granny mumbled, suppressing a hiccup. There might come a time when you girls need to hide or escape quickly, just like I did one night before you three lived here. There was a break-in after hours when I was alone. I used the bag to get out safely with the night's takings and raise the alarm. Without it, I'd never have escaped. She reached for her glass before realising it was empty and discarding it crossly. I'm not saying you will need them, but you must never use these objects without care, especially in a place like Crowstone. Most people here are connected to the prisoners in that prison, dangerous people who'd go to any lengths to get their hands on these things. Imagine if they knew of a bag that could transport them outside the prison walls, or a set of magical dolls that could sneak them past the warders unseen. So you listen to me, and you listen good. Your magic must only be used when it's truly required. Anything otherwise is a risk. But you did. Betty pointed out. You used your travelling bag to find us tonight, to land on the boat when you could have waited for the next one. That's the point. It couldn't wait. I'd never have found you in time. In time for what? Betty asked. To stop our fun before it even began? She waited for a remark about being lippy, but it never came. Dread uncurled in her stomach. All the talk of the dolls and magic had distracted her from the biggest question... None of this answers what you promised to tell us earlier, about why we can't leave Crowstone. Granny reached for her tobacco pouch. I thought I'd get the nice part out of the way first. She lit her pipe and took a deep drag, as though she were filling herself with courage. The truth is, we're cursed, all of us. No Widdershins girl has ever been able to leave Crowstone, if we do, we'll die by the next sunset. Chapter 5. The Widdershin's Curse Betty stared at Granny. For a moment, the kitchen was completely still, like a scene painted into a canvas. Granny's face was a mask of sorrow. Fliss's dark eyes were staring into her lap. Even the smoke from Granny's pipe appeared motionless, a choking cloud hanging over them. A horrible noise caught in Betty's throat, something that was half groan, half sob. The room felt airless, like the truth had sucked the breath from it. Just like all Betty's dreams and hopes had been crushed out of her. This was it, the big secret. The answer she had been searching for, like something buried in dirt. They were stuck here, in Crowstone, forever. The practical side of her wanted to laugh, to blurt out how ridiculous the idea of a curse was. Only Betty didn't feel practical now, not after everything that had just happened. Added to Granny's excuses and sudden appearances out of nowhere over the years, it suddenly seemed scarily possible. She was never leaving, never going to sail off and be Betty the Brave, Betty the Explorer, she was just another Widdershins girl, destined to be a drudge in a life of endless grey routine. They were all as stuck as father's ramshackle boat, rotting in the harbour, bobbing with no hope of ever going anywhere.
She blinked as Granny's pipe smoke hit her eyes, making them water. Next to her, Charlie began to cry softly. Betty was too numb to comfort her. Cursed, Betty answered, her voice hollow. How? Why? I asked myself the same questions when I first found out. Granny puffed on the pipe, her eyes glassy. I thought it was just a story, invented to keep curious girls from wandering too far. But even I had to admit that the deaths of eight Widdershins girls, stretching back over the past 150 years, couldn't be by chance. Strange, unexplained deaths of otherwise healthy girls and women. When did you find out? Betty asked, chilled. Was that on your wedding day too? No. Granny smiled faintly. Before then. Your grandpa warned me a long time before, when we were just sweethearts. He gave me plenty of chances to change my mind. Betty gaped. And you still went through with it? Granny shrugged. People make all kinds of sacrifices for... For love. Fliss finished. She placed her hand over Granny's old, wrinkled one. I'm sorry, Betty spluttered, but I can't understand any of this. It's just too strange. And confusing and unfair, she raged silently. All the possibility the enchanted object seemed to offer had been cruelly snatched away, and seeing the magic for herself made it harder to doubt the rest of what Granny was saying. Are you certain she asked weakly. Couldn't it just be bad luck? I was a lot like you once, Granny continued. At first I refused to believe it. Then one day I saw it for myself. The day the death toll rose to nine. The air in the room seemed to thicken, and not just with smoke. Betty suddenly had difficulty breathing. Nine? Nine girls died? she said faintly. I mean, I know you said it happens by sunset after leaving Crowstone, but what exactly happens? They, we, drop dead. She searched Granny's face, waiting for more horrible revelations and imagining tales of freak accidents. A vision of falling from a great height, of the ground rushing towards her and wind roaring in her ears floated before her eyes and a wave of terror and grief washed over her. She blinked it away, trembling with adrenaline. Where had that come from? It's always the same, Granny said. It starts with birdsong, the crow's chorus. Betty frowned. But that happens anyway at dawn, doesn't it? Granny nodded. The difference is, no matter how hard you look, you'll never see them. The sound exists only in your head. From the corner of her eye, Betty caught Fliss shuddering. It gets louder, Granny continued, staring into the distance as though remembering. As the sound grows, you become cold and colder still. And even though your skin is like ice to the touch, the last thing you feel before the end is a cold kiss. The hairs on Betty's arms stood up. How could you know that? Granny's lips quivered and her hand strayed towards her empty whiskey glass. Because I saw it with your father's cousin Clarissa, she said finally. I was there. Did she know about the curse? 
asked Betty, or was it an accident? Granny's fingers tightened around her glass, then slid to the tabletop, almost lifeless. Yes, she knew. She thought she could undo it. She'd heard of a place where, legend has it, wishes can be made. Horseshoe Bay across the marshes. She thought making the wish could uncurse us all, but it didn't work. Whatever magic exists in that bay, if it even does, it's not strong enough to undo the Widdishin's curse. And when she came back, she already knew it had failed. The crows were rasping in her head. Her skin was like ice. We couldn't get her warm. She came back to Crowstone, Betty asked. But wouldn't that stop the curse if she returned before sunset? Nothing stops it, Granny muttered, glassy-eyed. She linked her thumbs and fanned her fingers like bird's wings over her heart in the sign of the crow. Tell her about the stones, Fliss croaked. Her skin was waxy pale. Stones, Betty pressed. Every time the curse is triggered, a stone falls from the tower wall, Granny said in an uncharacteristically quiet voice. You mean Crowstone Tower? The prison? Granny nodded. But what does the prison have to do with the curse? Betty asked. Fliss's ashen face wasn't helping with the image of a freezing, dying Clarissa haunting her thoughts. How brave she had been to even try to break the curse, risking everything. To do that, she must have wanted to leave as much as Betty did and believed there was a way, even if she had failed. Granny shrugged. The tower is ancient, older than the rest of the prison. As for its link to the curse, well, there are stories, but none that tell us how to break it. Betty swallowed away the lump in her throat, trying not to cry. Tears solved nothing, but her leaking eyes didn't seem to care. Before tonight, she'd been able to dream of leaving Crowstone and living a different life. She'd never known that being kept there was more than Granny being overprotective, that leaving was actually impossible. She could see why Fliss had given up, but Betty couldn't accept it. Not yet. There must be a way to break it. There has to be. Granny gave a hollow laugh. Oh, that's what they all say. You think girls like you haven't had the same thought for generations? Of course they have. Clarissa was as determined as they come. Everything you can think of has been tried, from marrying to lose the Widdishin's name, to taking something of Crowstone with you, to leaving something of yourself in Crowstone. Nothing has worked. So now you know why I can't let it happen, not to any of you. She grasped Betty's hand suddenly, startling her. Please, Betty. Her shrewd old eyes were haunted. I'm begging you, don't try. I couldn't go through that again, not with one of you. Not, not like Clarissa. It'd kill me. Betty felt as though her heart was being wrung out. The last time she had seen Granny vulnerable like this had been when their father was taken away. It was easy to pretend this side of her didn't exist when it was so well hidden. And father? Betty asked. Surely he knows about the curse. Yes. Granny's voice was grave. Something like this. The whole family has to know. It's too dangerous not to. I often wonder if it was guilt, as well as your mother's death, that pushed him down the wrong path. Guilt? 
Fliss asked. You mean for passing the curse on to us? Granny nodded. He hated the unfairness of it, that no Widdishin's woman could ever leave. Yet through his own foolishness, he's now as trapped as we are. A mother? Betty asked. Was it really an accident, like you said, or was, was it the curse? Charlie had been just a baby, but Fliss and Betty both remembered the morning they'd learned their mother was gone. Granny and father had been sick, though their father had been the worse of the two. It was Granny who'd broken the news that their mother had gone to fetch a doctor in the night while a dense fog had lain over the island. On the way, she had become lost and wandered onto a frozen pond, falling through the ice. I was telling the truth about that. Granny rubbed her ruddy nose. I'm not sure whether that makes you feel better or worse, but your mother... It wasn't the curse. It was bad luck. Bad luck. The unwanted guest Granny was always trying to ward off with her charms, but nothing ever worked. Her parents were gone. The inn never made enough money to clear its debts. Fliss never kept a boyfriend, and all Betty's travel schemes had failed miserably. Even Charlie was always getting nits. Yes, thought Betty, it was fair to say that Lady Luck crossed the road when she saw the Widdishins coming. They were interrupted by a low rumbling chant, accompanied by a rhythmic thudding from downstairs. A moment later came the sound of a door being flung open. The chanting of, Beer! 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 was followed by a shriek from Gladys at the foot of the stairs. Bunny, if I don't get some help right now, I'm leaving. They're thumping on the bar, the louts, Granny said, outraged. She leapt to her feet with a fresh surge of energy, her knees clicking. Get yourself together, Fliss, she said, then come downstairs. We've already been gone too long. She left the kitchen, and a moment later the noise downstairs surged as Granny rushed through the door into the bar. Momentarily, the spell over them was broken, and things felt almost normal. Normal. How could life below carry on as it always had, when for Betty, everything had changed? All this time, she'd thought she was in control of her destiny, but if what Granny said was true, her only destiny was this, one there was no escape from. Betty glanced at her sisters, Charlie had been struck dumb and had one thumb lodged firmly in her mouth, a habit Betty had thought was long broken. Fliss was silent, brooding. You should have told me about the curse, Betty said at last. She felt heavy, as though the revelations of the evening were crushing her like fallen stones from the prison tower. Fliss looked up, her dark eyes weary. I wanted you to still have hope that someday you'd leave this place. Betty felt herself getting prickly now. What's the point if it can't ever happen? Wouldn't it have been kinder to tell the truth? Yes, I mean, no, oh, I don't know. Fliss bit her lower lip. I wanted to, but Granny made me promise. It never stopped you before, Betty said, hurt creeping into her voice. We used to tell each other everything. Fliss's cheeks went pink. Do you remember when you were little? She glanced meaningfully at Charlie. The thing that I told you. Betty nodded, scowling. 
When Fliss was eight and Betty just five, Fliss had discovered that the tooth fairy wasn't real and had in fact been Granny putting a copper rook under the pillow. She had immediately told Betty. Granny had been furious and had never let Fliss forget it. I never forgave myself for that, Fliss said quietly, spoiling it for you when you could have had the magic a while longer. This is nothing like that said Betty. That was a silly childhood belief. A family curse is not the same. I think it is. It comes down to the same thing, which is innocence. Fliss tried to smile. I wanted that for you, just for a little longer. To not have this be the first thing you think of in the morning and the last thing at night. Because once it's there, that's it. Her eyes shone suddenly. This is the rest of our lives. The rest of our lives. Betty stared into her sister's desperate eyes and saw her own mirrored there. She had felt smothered before, but that was nothing compared to now. The curse had snared her like an invisible bindweed, strangling the hope out of her. And not even magic could make up for it. Hours later, Betty lay awake in bed with Charlie snoring softly next to her. It had taken ages for Charlie to fall into a restless sleep, hours of fidgeting and thumb-sucking as Betty told every story she knew to try and settle her, but none was as strange or as dark as the one they had just heard. Eventually, Charlie dozed off, but Betty was wide awake. Voices burbled beneath them. How odd, she thought, to live the way they did, even though the poacher's pocket was theirs, it never truly felt it. It always hummed with other people's voices, creaked under other people's feet. Even the bedroom was shared, a jumble of Charlie's stuffed toys, rag dolls, shells and pebbles, and then novels, jam jars of buttons and other useful bits and a sewing kit of Betty's. Her most treasured items were her book of stamps and her map collection, which she had pored over on many a quiet afternoon, jotting down the names of places she planned on exploring. It had all begun when her father had been haggling down at the harbour one morning. Betty had wandered off with a mapmaker's daughter from one of the ships. Her name was Roma, and she had smooth brown skin and braided hair, as well as a thousand memories of clear turquoise waters, arid deserts and snow-capped mountains. Betty had listened, spellbound, wishing more than anything that she could see them herself. Later, as Roma helped pack up the maps, Betty had begged until her father had relented and bought her one, her very first map. She had cradled it like treasure as the mapmaker's ship set sail, becoming a speck in the distance. They never saw Roma again, but the spell she had cast over Betty remained. Her eyes lingered on her maps. A whole world she'd longed to explore rolled within them. Now the curse had ruined them for her, like a tempting but poisoned box of chocolates. She could look, but a single taste would kill her. Her gaze slid from the maps to a flicker of moonlight on the cracked ceiling, and a tear trickled down her cheek. She couldn't imagine a world she was forbidden to explore, just as she couldn't imagine that there wasn't an answer somewhere out there to make it possible. And then she sat up in bed, realising something. Granny hadn't said it wasn't possible. 
She had said that nothing the other girls had attempted before had worked, which meant that Granny still believed there was a way the curse could be undone, even if she was too afraid to pursue it. I'm sorry, Granny, Betty whispered determinedly in the darkness. But if there is a way to break the curse, I have to try. Chapter 6 Leech Pond Latchdown Betty listened for another half an hour until she heard Granny and Fliss creaking up the stairs. There followed the sounds of running water, bedroom doors clicking closed and the groan of beds being slid into. Then silence. Betty waited until Granny's snores were rumbling through the wall. Then she slipped out of bed, shivering as her bare feet met the chilly air. Quickly, she hopped into her slippers and crept out into the hall. Her arms prickled with goose pimples as she approached the dank, creepy cupboard on the landing. It was full of cleaning things and junk and was the one part of the building all three girls disliked. After getting locked in once during a game of hide-and-seek, Charlie especially hated it. Betty shivered, hurrying past. The snores were regular and deep now. She pushed Granny's door open a little way and slunk into the darkened room. The scent of pipe smoke lingered in the air, along with the distinctive smell of whiskey breath. Granny was out for the count all right. Betty remembered Granny's plea and felt a moment of guilt. Please, Betty, don't try. I couldn't go through that again. It'd kill me. The idea of hurting Granny was even worse than the thought of angering her. But I have to do this, Betty reminded herself. As much for Granny as for us. She moved to the wardrobe and, opening it, retrieved an old biscuit tin from the shelf. Then she tiptoed into the kitchen. She didn't want Charlie waking and asking questions, and if Granny woke up, she could easily hide the tin and say she'd come to get a drink. She sat at the table, easing the lid off the tin. She wasn't doing anything particularly wrong. All three girls had seen this tin many times. Granny had often amused them with its family keepsakes and knick-knacks, such as the girls' cards and drawings, a couple of old photographs and a pair of baby shoes that all three of them had worn. There was also a sheaf of papers which Granny had always whipped away in case something got mislaid. But tonight, this was exactly what Betty was looking for. She lifted them out and spread them over the table. First, she found a stash of letters which their grandfather had sent to Granny during the war, each one limp and yellowed with age. They were all Granny had left of him now. Betty set them aside. They were not hers to look through. She passed over the girl's birth documents and her mother's death papers. A quick glance confirmed what Granny had said. Their mother had drowned. She slipped the papers back into the pile, then froze as a light creak sounded from the hallway. Granny's rumbling snores had stopped. Desperately, she gathered up the papers, but the pile of letters teetered, scattering on the floor as someone stepped into the kitchen. The glow from a candle flickered over a heart-shaped face and a mass of dark, shiny hair. Jumping jackdaws, Betty hissed, heart thumping. Betty? Fliss whispered, rubbing her eyes. What are you up to? Betty pressed a finger to her lips, beckoning. In silence, Fliss came closer, setting the candle on the table. 
Both girls kneel down, retrieving the letters. Moments later, another loud snore assured Betty that Granny was still asleep. I was just looking for something, anything that might help us find out more about the curse, Betty said. Something Granny might have missed. But Betty, Fliss began worriedly, Granny said, I know what she said. Betty shot her a warning glance, but there's no harm in looking. She gathered up another handful of letters. I hope there isn't an order to these. She frowned, lifting an envelope to the light. What is it? Fliss whispered. These letters, I thought they were all Granny's, but there's another pile underneath them. Look. She pushed the envelope at her sister, pointing at the familiar scrawl on the front. It's father's writing, and it's addressed to us, but... She turned the envelope over. It's never been opened. Fliss snatched up another of the envelopes, stricken. But Granny said father had stopped writing, that he'd been too ashamed, too miserable. Why would she lie? Unless... What if he's sick? Dying? She slid her thumbnail under the seal. We have to open them. No! Betty snatched it away. Something was very wrong here. She felt it as much as Fliss did. Granny was brutally honest most of the time, especially when it came to their parents. So why would she conceal these letters? The only things she had hidden were connected to the curse. But they're ours, Fliss insisted. We've every right to see what's in them. I know, Betty answered, but there must be a reason why Granny's kept them from us. We need to be smart. She's planning on giving them to us at some point. Otherwise, why keep them at all? When, though? Look, the postmark is from three months ago. Betty squinted at the envelope, trying to work out what was different. Then she saw it. There. She jabbed at the paper where a slightly smudged emblem had been stamped. See that? I can't believe I didn't notice it straight away. Fliss peered closer. Wait, that's not the Crowstone prison emblem. It's different. Too right it's different. Betty could recall the Crowstone emblem perfectly, an ornate etching of the prison tower surrounded by a flock of crows. However, this emblem was unfamiliar, a heavy padlock entwined with what appeared to be writhing eels. He never stopped writing to us, Betty murmured, suddenly ashamed of how readily she'd accepted the idea of their father cutting off contact, of him letting them down again, only he hadn't. A surge of love lifted the grudge inside, lightening it. He's been moved to a different prison away from Crowstone, and Granny didn't want us to find out. Fliss read the tiny words under the stamp. Leech Pond Latchtown. Doesn't sound pleasant. Betty eyed the emblem in distaste. Not eels, after all, but leeches. She leafed through the other envelopes. On others, the postmark was clearer. Lost moors, Betty read. It sounded familiar. Wait here. She left the kitchen and crept back to the bedroom. Charlie was breathing deeply, huddled under the covers like a dormouse. Betty poured through her maps before settling on the one she wanted. She brought it into the kitchen, unrolling it on the table. The waxy paper was crinkled from time and wear, but the inky lettering and tiny hand-drawn details were as beautiful as ever. She quickly located Lost Moors on the map, slightly off-centre. 
It was surrounded by valleys, mountains, and not much else. A lump rose in her throat. Just how far away was he? Her finger travelled down the paper to four craggy marks at the bottom. Crowstone and its three sorrow isles within the misty marshes. A crescent of deadly rocks known as the Devil's Teeth curved round lament. And there, inked on the island of Repent, was Crowstone Tower, the oldest part of the prison. Granny was protecting us, Betty said, understanding. She couldn't risk us leaving Crowstone to try and visit Father. It was easier to hide the letters and pretend he was still here, but... She trailed off as a thought pricked her like a thistle. Fliss frowned. She could have told me. I knew none of us could leave. Why would he be transferred in the first place? Maybe it was simpler if none of us knew, Betty replied, speaking in a rush now the thistly thought had taken root. There's probably lots of reasons why prisoners get moved about, but why would Granny still have been visiting if he's not there, unless she's been pretending? Fliss shook her head. She was there. How can you be sure? Because I do the washing, Fliss answered, and Granny usually forgets to empty her pockets. Wait here. She vanished, leaving Betty alone in the darkened kitchen to creep back to her room. Moments later, she returned with a scrap of paper bearing the crowstone emblem. See? A visiting slip from last week. Why did you keep this? Betty asked. Surely you didn't already suspect... Oh... Turning the paper, she found a soppy love poem in Fliss's looped handwriting, embellished with doodled hearts and flowers. Ugh! Don't read that, Fliss growled. She snatched the paper back, blushing. The point is, this is proof Granny has been visiting the prison recently. Betty felt another ripple of unease. But if it's not Father she's been seeing, then who is it? Chapter 7. The Prison on the Marshes The morning dawned to a thick fog sweeping in off the marshes. It sprawled over the streets and seeped into the poacher's pocket in damp, salty draughts. Betty woke with even frizzier hair than usual. She shivered into freezing clothes and wriggled into a pair of Fliss's hand-me-down boots, which were a smidge too big. Stamping into the kitchen to try and warm herself, she found Fliss at the stove. Morning, Fliss said. Morning. Betty suppressed a yawn, gritty-eyed. She watched as her older sister ladled porridge into a chipped bowl for Charlie, who was waiting impatiently. The scene was so reassuringly familiar that Betty fleetingly wondered if she had dreamed the events of the previous evening and there was no curse or magical family heirlooms, but then she saw that Fliss's smile was tight and heard the tapping of Charlie's spoon on her dish, which was more of a nervous tremble than a merry jingle. Betty's stomach lurched. No, everything that had happened last night was real all right. A curse and three magical objects. Stones dropping out of tower walls. She replayed the powers of each item in her head, then thought about the curse again. Though Granny hadn't said as much, she couldn't help wonder if the magical objects and the curse were connected. Granny's still in bed, said Fliss distractedly. She reckons she's got a stinker of a headache. More like a skimful of whiskey, Betty muttered. 
The fumes wafting from her sleeping grandmother as she'd crept back into her room to replace the tin had made Betty's eyes water. Her eyes watered a little now, too, to think of how hard it must have been for poor Granny to be responsible for them all while keeping such a terrible secret. Fliss gave the pot another stir. The smell of singed porridge floated past Betty's nose. Want some? Betty eyed the grey gloop. Uh, I'll have it if Betty don't want it, Charlie interrupted, scraping out her bowl. Charlie was always hungry and would eat practically anything. She'd always been the same ever since she was a baby, so much so that Granny always said she must have worms. Father, who always had to exaggerate, said they were eels, not worms. You have it. Betty ignored the rumbling in her tummy. This was easier than usual now her thoughts were occupied by the curse, especially since she'd made up her mind to break it. Fliss gave Betty a meaningful glance. Granny said she's not visiting father today. Betty's ears pricked up at once. Oh, isn't she? Granny had missed a couple of visits recently with flimsy excuses. However, last night's discovery made this all the less surprising, seeing as their father hadn't been there for months. The only other thing connecting the Widdishins to the prison were the stones falling from Crowstone Tower. Could Granny's recent visits be linked to the curse and not their father? Perhaps they could find out if they dared. Fliss glanced at Charlie, who was still shoveling down her lumpy breakfast. What about church? Betty asked. Fliss made a face. Doubt it. Granny only went to church to stay on the right side of her customers. Given what a sinful place Crowstone was, everyone on the outside of the prison was keen to prove how law-abiding and repenting they were. Betty didn't enjoy going, either. It was bottom-numbingly cold, and Granny often dozed off and embarrassed them by snoring. Fliss, on the other hand, was always looking for ways to be a nicer person. At times her attention wandered, however, only to be caught by whichever lad was the latest to take her fancy. Charlie was simply there for the warm bread rolls handed out to the poorer folk at the end, and would loiter around looking mournful until she was taken pity on. I wonder if that means we don't have to go to Sunday school, then, Fliss mused. Seeing as Granny's not going to the prison today. She scraped some porridge into a bowl for herself, grimacing as she forced a mouthful down. But I want to go, Charlie piped up, licking her bowl. We're finishing the blankets for the orphans this week. You can still go, Charlie, dear, Fliss soothed. We know you enjoy it. You know... Betty said with a sidelong glance at Fliss. Now you're 16, we wouldn't need Granny to come to the prison with us to see Father, if he still wanted to see us, I mean. You're right, Fliss replied. She lowered her voice and looked thoughtful. But surely being alone is only making him more gloomy. Perhaps what he needs is a nice surprise. She caught Betty's eye, and the two sisters shared a look, the kind of look that used to pass between them often, but hadn't in a long time. It was a secret look, and it was one Betty had missed, and they both knew, without any words, exactly what they were going to do.
They left after church a couple of hours later, moving briskly through the cobbled streets, ducking their faces from view whenever someone came the opposite way. Delicious smells of roasting meat wafted through cracked windows. Betty's stomach rumbled, but as they neared the marshes, briny air dampened her hunger. I'm not sure about this, Betty. What if Charlie let slip to Granny? Fliss's voice was low and nervous. Damp air blew their hair around their faces, Fliss's like a long silk scarf and Betty's like a mass of dry wool. They drew their shawls more tightly around their shoulders, shivering. Charlie will be too busy yapping about what she did at Sunday school to care about us, said Betty. Anyway, it won't matter if she does. She thought of their father's hidden letters. By the time Granny hears about it, we'll have found out who she was visiting and why. We can play dumb and say we wanted a surprise father. We're not doing anything wrong, exactly. The prison came into view in the distance. Further away to the left were the other sorrow isles, and beyond, a smear of grey on the horizon. The next town along from Marshfoot is Merry on the Marsh, Fliss said softly. Do you suppose we'll ever see what they've got to be merry about? We will if I can help it, Betty answered more bravely than she felt. Yesterday, crossing Crowstone's boundaries had simply been an adventure. Today she knew it was something that would kill them. Yet Betty couldn't deny an undercurrent of excitement. For so long she had wished for something to happen, and now it was, or at least it could. Whatever Granny said, there had to be a way to change things. They arrived at the ferry point shortly before the boat docked at the platform, the only passengers aside from a wizened old woman. They paid their fares and clambered on. The early morning mists had cleared and patches of blue sky were peeking through thick cloud. In the distance, a tiny ship bobbed on glittering water, reminding Betty of the day she had spent with the mapmaker's daughter. Where was Roma now? How much more of the world had she seen while Betty had been stagnating here? Do you remember those stories father used to tell? Betty asked. The ones he heard from the merchants and sailors about beaches with golden sand as fine as sugar and water so clear you could see to the bottom. Fliss nodded, her mouth twisting as she looked over the soupy water stretching away from them. I used to love those stories, but they just became harder and harder to imagine. Betty gazed towards Repent as a troubling thought occurred to her. What if Granny's just been coming here to appeal? to get father moved back. Suddenly doubts were pressing in on her. Already she had known the chances of a link to the curse were slim, but they had no other leads. Fliss frowned. I don't think so. The visiting slips have a prisoner number on them. A prisoner number? But we'll need that. Fliss grinned, patting her bag. Good thing I brought it then. Betty sagged against the side of the boat with relief. I'm surprised Charlie didn't insist on coming with us, she murmured once they'd pushed off from land. Her warm breath misted the air, which was even cooler out on the water. Why would she? Fliss said through chattering teeth. Better to stay in the warm than freeze her cockles off for someone she barely remembers outside of the prison walls. There was a bitterness to Fliss's tone that Betty rarely heard. She felt it too, but less sharply since the discovery of their father's letters. The letters meant he still thought of them. He still cared. 
You've never forgiven Father for leaving us, have you? Fliss huffed out a long breath. I've tried. I'm still trying. But it's hard. He should be here with us, not in there, especially after losing Mother. I know he was trying to look after us in his own stupid way, but... She trailed off, looking over Betty's shoulder. Betty became aware that the ferryman was listening with interest. Fliss didn't need to say more, anyway. They both remembered how it had all happened. After their mother had died, Barney Widdishins had drank and gambled, spiralling out of control. By the time any of them knew how much money he had frittered away, the poacher's pocket was deep in debt. Yet still, Father insisted he had a solution, selling smuggled goods. Only he'd boasted to the wrong people and was rewarded with a five-year prison sentence. It's Charlie I feel most angry for, Fliss said, ashen-faced. She had never been good at travelling over water. She didn't really have a chance to miss Mother, but she could have known what it was to have a father, even a fool like ours. Privately, Betty disagreed. Charlie seemed happy enough, not missing what she'd never had. It was Betty and Fliss who remembered and felt the loss strongest. And Betty thought, a little enviously, that as the first-born daughter, Fliss had been their father's favourite. A daddy's girl. Fliss gave a little moan as the boat lurched. If you're going to throw up, do it over the side, the ferryman said without an ounce of pity. Keep your eyes on the prison, Betty told her. Granny always says it helps to look at something in the distance. Granny. It was the first time either of them had made this journey without her, or with the knowledge of the curse that ran through their veins. It was a grim thought that the ferry was plunging towards the edges of Crowstone, where their world ended. The prison looked worse by day. When Betty had seen the lit windows and flickering will-o'-the-wisps on the water the previous night, she could almost have imagined that it was a fairy tale castle in the distance. In daylight, there was no pretending. The stone building was squat and grey, hulking over the land like it was consuming it. The rows of tiny windows were like mean, empty eyes, and as the ferry drew closer, the bars on them came into view. Only one part didn't fit, the high stone tower. It didn't look as though it belonged, or was part of the prison at all. Betty gazed up at it, shielding her eyes from the brightening sky. Every time the curse is triggered, a stone falls from the tower wall. Without warning, the vision of falling from a great height flashed through her mind again. Her breathing quickened. What was that? A memory bobbed to the surface, a story of a girl who had fallen to her death from the tower. She tore her gaze away as the ferry docked. Betty stepped off and held out her hand to steady Fliss. She wobbled past the ferryman onto dry land, past the queue of people waiting to board. I feel a bit better now, Fliss muttered, colour returning to her cheeks. Looks like I'll hold on to my porridge after all. They headed up the path to the prison, crunching over pebbles and cockle shells. Up ahead, just outside the prison walls, was a seafood stall. Ugh! Fliss moaned as the fishy smell wafted round them. Impatient, Betty urged her on, doing her best to block her sister's view of the jellied eels and winkles. 
Then they were past the stall with the huge prison doors ahead. Betty stiffened, aware that the sentry was watching them, Fliss in particular, with interest. Betty rolled her eyes. Fliss could hardly go anywhere without being gawked at, even when she was green from seasickness. There was no question she was pretty. Her silky hair and dark eyes had always drawn admiring glances. But it was more than that. Her goodness and willingness to see the best in things was something people seemed to sense. Today, this was the last thing they needed, drawing unwanted attention when they were trying to find things out. Names? the sentry asked, smoothing his uniform like a bird preening its feathers. Widdershins, said Betty, in the same clipped tone Granny used when she wanted to hurry things or people up. Visiting? Our father, Fliss replied, before Betty could interrupt. Betty could have kicked her. What if the sentry knew that Barney Widdershins was no longer in this prison? She held her breath, hoping that there were more prisoners than the warders could keep track of, or that admiring Fliss was enough of a distraction. said Fliss. She blew into her hands and gave the sentry a beseeching look, and like his boots had been buttered, he slid back and ushered them through. They stepped into a vaulted stone walkway. The dark, shadowy shapes of rats scurried along ahead of them, squeaking and causing Fliss to squeak even louder. Below a rusted sign saying visitors was another door. Through this lay a large room with wooden benches and a line of sombre people waiting to sign the visitor's book. Oh no, Fliss muttered. Look over there. Betty searched the queue, smiling tightly at a couple of poacher's pocket regulars farther on who were looking their way. It was inevitable that in a place as small as Crowstone, they'd see someone they knew. What if they tell Granny they saw us? Fliss asked, pulling her shawl up further. I doubt they would, said Betty. Everyone knows how cross she gets if they dare to mention Father being in prison. Anyway, if they did, Granny would have more explaining to do than us about who she's been visiting all this time. As they queued, the girls' pockets and bags were searched for contraband and their scalps inspected for fleas with a long-fingered comb. The indignity of it! Fliss blustered, rearranging her hair. Moments later, they reached the front of the queue and the visitor's book lay open before them. Fliss lifted the pen, dipping it into the inkwell on the counter. Under visitor name, she simply wrote Widdershins, followed by the date, time and visitor number. 513, Betty read, trying to recall what father's number had been. 449. Fliss said softly, not looking up, in case you were wondering. Under prisoner name, she scrawled an unreadable squiggle, then tore off the slip. They squeezed their bottoms into a small space on one of the hard benches and waited. Minutes later, the word Widdershins was barked. They stood up, glancing at each other nervously. It was time to find out who Prisoner 513 was. Chapter 8. Prisoner 513. The girls were led through a stone courtyard which stank of gutters and sewage. They hurried after the warder, dodging rat droppings and traps. 
Fliss pulled her shawl over her nose and mouth, squeaking as a furry shape scuttled past their feet. Did you see the size of that? It looks like it eats prisoners for breakfast. Betty found her own lips were clamped into a revolted line. At the centre of the courtyard was a large wooden frame with steps leading up to a trap door set into a platform. Above it swayed a long rope noose. Betty gulped, her fingers flying to her throat. She had seen the gallows on previous visits, but it was never any less disturbing. Thankfully, the one that used to be at Crowstone's crossroads had been torn down years ago, and executions were no longer public. Instead, they took place here, within the prison walls. It was a stark reminder of exactly how grim the jail was, and Betty suddenly, desperately, wanted this not to have been a wasted journey. Please let us get some answers, she thought. I don't know where else to start. Crossing the courtyard, they were shown into a wide, high-ceilinged room. Its only windows were high up and barred. A long bench ran the length of it, set before a wooden counter. The bench was occupied by visitors, and the counter was divided by iron bars down the length of it. On the other side sat the prisoners, in identical clothes, distinctive loose tunics and trousers that bore the same marks all over them. At first glance, the markings looked like tiny arrows, but as Betty continued to stare, they came to look more like birds' footprints. The image of crows clawing the dirt went through her mind. Betty scanned the prisoners' faces. All were men or boys. The prison had stopped housing women some years ago. She felt Fliss's cold fingers wrap tightly around hers and knew what was going through her sister's head. Some of these inmates were little more than children, perhaps only a year or two older than herself. Yet the haunted look in their eyes made them appear far older. It was now that Betty felt the first stirrings of unease. Who was this prisoner Granny had been visiting, and what had he done to end up here? Would he even talk to them, or were they clutching at straws? She felt Fliss's grip tighten. Her sister was attracting interest, Though the prisoners appeared too cowed to do or say anything in the warder's presence, the way some of them were eyeing Fliss like dogs around meat made Betty glad of the bars between them. From the way Fliss kept her eyes lowered, Betty knew she was glad too. One prisoner in particular caught Betty's attention, for he was different to the rest. He was dark-skinned, something which was out of the ordinary in Crowstone. Everyone the girls had ever known was a different shade of pale, all of whom greyed as the years passed. He looked around Fliss's age, and his black, wiry hair had been cropped close to his scalp. Yet it was more than his appearance which made him stand out. His black eyes did not share the same resigned look as the other prisoners. There was a spark of something behind them. They were lively, questioning, and they were regarding Betty and Fliss not with the same wolfish look as the others, but with a fierce, open curiosity. Somehow, before she had even read the numbers sewn onto his tunic, Betty knew, and suddenly felt that this was all a big mistake. He was barely more than a boy. Surely he couldn't know much about an ancient curse. Perhaps Granny had another reason for visiting him, but Betty couldn't imagine what. Now she was here... She might as well try to find out. That's him, she whispered, nudging Fliss. 
513. Gently, she pulled her hand free of Fliss's and moved towards the bench in front of him. Fliss followed closely, ducking her head. It was so unlike her not to want to be looked at that it was almost amusing, and ordinarily Betty would have poked fun at her, but today wasn't ordinary. The young man shifted and sat up straighter as they squeezed onto the hard bench side by side. He had been interested before, but now he was alert and watchful too. Betty cleared her throat, not because she especially needed to, but because she couldn't think of anything to say and it didn't appear that Fliss would take the lead. She waited, hoping that the surprise of them sitting might make him speak first, but he continued to stare in silence. Betty leaned closer to the bars, suddenly aware that the elbow of the visitor next to her was touching her arm. There was so little space, so little privacy in here. You must be wondering who we are, she began awkwardly. Still, he said nothing, so she continued. I'm Betty, and this is my sister Fliss. We understand our granny, Bunny Widdishins, has been visiting you. The prisoner's expression remained unchanged, but he leaned forward. For a horrible moment, Betty thought he wouldn't speak. Where is she? His voice was disappointingly ordinary. Because of his looks, Betty had expected him to sound exotic, melodious even, perhaps from one of the faraway lands she had read about. But his accent was every bit as common as her own. She's not well. The prisoner looked from Betty to Fliss, then back again. She caught a glimpse of amusement in his dark eyes and felt a flare of annoyance. He found the idea of Granny being unwell funny. She doesn't know you're here. It was a statement, not a question. From his tone, Betty understood that it was this he found amusing, not Granny being unwell. Already she could tell he was sharp like he had them all figured out. It made her feel wrong-footed, like she had already lost control of where the conversation was going. Who are you, and why has our granny been coming to see you? I'm prisoner 513. Names don't mean much in here. Well, we'd like to know it anyway, Betty replied evenly, trying to sound bolder than she felt. So please don't waste our time. He shrugged. Colton. My name is Colton. He said it slowly, as if he was savouring it. Betty wondered when it was that he had last been asked, instead of being referred to as a number. And why has Granny been visiting you? She repeated. Colton lifted his hands onto the counter, drumming his long brown fingers on the wood. His wrists were shackled, and his hands looked like they belonged to someone much older, they were dry and calloused, the hands of someone who knew hard work. She wondered what hard work in a prison might involve. Then she wondered again about the crime he had committed, what those hands had done for him to end up in this place. There were all sorts in Crowstone Prison, thieves, smugglers and murderers. According to Granny, it had once held suspected sorcerers and witches, an idea Betty had always dismissed along with Bunny's other superstitions. Given everything she had learned in the past day, the thought didn't seem quite so silly now. Why don't you ask her yourself? he said. Betty stared at him. Was he being obnoxious or genuinely curious? It was difficult to say. 
We could, she said stiffly. But seeing as she hasn't been honest about her recent visits here and, well, about a lot of things, actually, we wanted to see what we could find out for ourselves. Colton nodded slowly. So you're smart, just like the old lady. Are you going to tell us or not? Impatient, too. Colton grinned infuriatingly. That's another thing you share. He glanced Fliss's way. How about you, Princess? You always let your clever sister do the talking. He peered at her. Can you talk? Or are you just for show? Fliss glared, her cheeks flushing pink. I can talk. Hmm, said Colton. Maybe just too law-abiding to talk to the likes of me, then. I'm here, aren't I? Fliss's voice was prickly, which would suggest not. Colton's gaze lingered on Fliss a moment longer before returning to Betty. All right, smart girl, he said softly. Let's see how smart you are. Let's see if you can work it out. Betty wondered whether Granny's visits to Colton had been as frustrating as this. Had she also struggled to steer the conversation and felt as helpless as Betty did now? The more Colton held back, the more she wanted answers. Why don't you stop playing games and tell us? Because in here, there aren't many games to play, not for someone like me. Colton's dark eyes were wide and serious, and Betty understood then. She nodded. She would play his game. Well, Granny's never mentioned you, so I'm guessing you only met after my father was moved out of here. She paused. Did you have something to do with him being moved? No. Colton clasped his hands together on the counter. I saw him often, for a while. Our cells were directly opposite, but I barely spoke to him. Your father... Well, he's not someone I wanted knowing too much about me, if you understand my meaning. Betty did understand. She avoided looking at Fliss, but her sister was fidgeting, a sure sign she was uncomfortable. They all knew Barney Widdershins had a big mouth, but hearing it from outside the family stung. Do you know why he was moved? Betty persisted. Colton shrugged again. To make space. This place is overcrowded, but it's high security. The location makes it harder to escape from than other prisons, and old Barney isn't much of a threat compared to others here. What did you do to end up here? Fliss blurted out. Betty looked at her in surprise. It was unlike Fliss to be so direct, but Colton seemed neither surprised nor offended. Nothing, he said. I'm innocent. But in here, that's what everybody says, so I don't expect you to believe me. Betty stayed silent, studying him. Colton wasn't making this easy, and she couldn't imagine Granny giving up her time to be here unless it was important. Really important. If Colton barely knew their father, then the visits must be about something else. Perhaps she had been wrong to assume Colton was too young to know anything about the curse. He certainly had something Granny was after. What is it my grandmother wants from you, exactly? Not my place to say. Ask her. I've already explained about Granny hiding things, Betty said, impatient now. And why would you care whether it's your place to tell us or not? What are we to you, anyway? Nothing, that's what. True, Colton said without a hint of emotion. But it's not you I'm looking out for. It's me. And let me tell you something. Nothing is given away in here. 
Everything is traded and knowledge is valuable, he said. You've gone to a lot of trouble to get here, haven't you? You want information badly. I can give it, but only in exchange for what you have. Betty's mind whirred with excitement. So there was information, but what did Colton think they had to trade? She knew what she had to ask, at the risk of sounding foolish or mad. What did it matter? They never had to see Colton again after today, and if he knew something of value, it could be the start Betty needed to change her family's terrible legacy. Is this about the curse? Betty heard Fliss's breath catch and knew she had seen the trace of recognition in Colton's eyes. So what do you know about it? Betty asked. Her insides were fluttering like a candle flame. How to break it. Four tiny words with such enormous power. Betty tensed, like a bowstring that had been pulled back, ready to fire. She had hoped Colton might know something, but she hadn't considered that he could have the solution. After the shock of having her dream shattered only hours ago, the possibility of her freedom now felt tantalisingly close. But doubts still lurked. How could this, this stranger know of their sinister family secret? And how could he know how to undo it when generations of Widdishin's girls had failed? She only realised she was holding her breath when Fliss squeezed her hand. She leaned forward, her nose almost touching the bars. What? You heard. Colton's voice was low. I know how it can be broken. How? How could you possibly know that? Fliss whispered. This he didn't answer. If you know, then why haven't you told Granny? Fliss asked. I mean, you can't have, not if she keeps coming back. Still, he said nothing. He's bluffing, Betty muttered. She felt suddenly sick and dismayed at how easily her hopes had been raised. He must be. If there was a chance the curse could be undone, Granny would have taken it. I haven't told her, Colton cut in, because she hasn't given me what I want in return. Bitterness spread through Betty, like water turning to ice. It would be so easy to reach through those bars and seize him by the collar, and she badly wanted to, to shake him until his teeth rattled. But of course she wouldn't dare. For one thing, she hadn't forgotten that Colton was a potentially dangerous prisoner. For another, there were too many warders. They'd be straight on her like a ferret on a rabbit. We don't have anything, she said through clenched teeth. Everyone knows the Widdishins are poor. Our father left debts. I haven't asked for money, Colton replied. What good would that do me in here? No, what I want is something far bigger. He lowered his voice further so that Betty and Fliss had to lean even closer to hear him. I want to get out. The emotionless look in his eyes wavered. Betty glimpsed something else behind them, desperation and fear. I want her to help me escape. That's impossible, Betty said, her voice rising. She lowered it, afraid of drawing attention. How on earth do you think Granny could help you? She's an old woman. And a law unto herself, from what I've heard, Colton said. It wouldn't be impossible, not for her. He blinked, his eyes becoming calm and hard to read once more, but Betty couldn't forget how haunted they'd been just moments ago. 
Why did he believe Granny could help him? Surely he couldn't know what else the Widdishins possessed. Look, said Betty, troubled now, even if it... What you're asking were possible, Granny couldn't risk it. She'd go to prison herself. I know about that bag of hers, Colton whispered, never taking his eyes from Betty's. And what it does, she could get me out, and no one would know until I was long gone. The words sent an unpleasant tremor through Betty, rather like a marsh eel had slithered down her back. This changed everything. If Colton knew about the bag, who else did? The thought of their secret being exposed made her fearful. Granny had stressed how much danger they'd be in if the knowledge of it was leaked. How? How could you possibly know about that? She asked at last. I know all about you, Widdishins, he hissed, his eyes taking on a wild look. The same way I know about the curse, how it began here, within these walls, in that tower. So if you want to escape Crowstone, you'd better listen to me. Betty froze, aware that Fliss's breathing was coming in short, quick gasps. Her sister was every bit as stunned as she was. Aren't you forgetting something? she said, forcing the words out with difficulty. If you know about the curse, then you know we can't leave. We're trapped. Even if we got you out, we couldn't take you beyond Crowstone's borders. Colton leaned forward hungrily. I'm not asking you to. I just want you to help me outside these walls. The rest I can handle myself. He dropped his voice to barely above a whisper. All I need is to get to lament. From there, I can escape Crowstone once and for all. Betty shuddered. The thought of the graveyard aisle filled her with a creeping dread. It was a mournful, desolate place, perfect for someone trying to escape. There was little likelihood of being seen. Does anyone else know about the bag? She asked. Colton shook his head. If they do, they didn't hear it from me. How do we know that's true? said Fliss, her voice quavering. Betty met Colton's eyes. They were even darker than Fliss's, and she couldn't imagine what was hidden in the depths of them, but she could imagine the bag from his point of view. It was his ticket to escape. Because he doesn't want anyone else getting their hands on it any more than we do, she said. Outside in the yard, a bell began to chime, signalling that visiting time was over. The prisoners rose to their feet obediently. Though Colton stood too, his gaze never left Betty's face. The prisoners ahead of Colton began shuffling to the door like meek dogs. He turned to go, but Betty sprang up. Wait! she begged, desperate to know more before he was whisked away. Time's up! a warder barked, rapping his baton harshly on the counter. Colton lowered his head, but turned his face to Betty, delaying his exit by a mere moment. Help me, he said through gritted teeth. Again, the self-assured mask slipped and his frustration and hopelessness were plain to see. And I'll help you. The delay earned him a hefty thwack on the arm from the warder's baton. Colton winced, hushing immediately before following the rest of the prisoners to the door like a line of ants. He gave the girls one last pleading glance. Then... He was gone.
Chapter 9 Ghosts Outside the prison once more, Betty and Fliss waited at the marsh's edge for the ferry. Betty stared up at the foreboding tower. Lost Widdershin's lives, she thought, searching its walls for missing stones. It was too far away to see any, but the vision of falling and the flashes of terror and grief she'd experienced were fresh in her mind. Was Colton right? Had the curse all started there? And how could they persuade him to tell them what else he knew? Because if it meant changing their destiny, they had to. It was a relief to be in the open air despite the chill. Even the saltiness of the marshes smelled better than the stench of the prison. So now what? Fliss asked. Now we go home and decide what we're going to do. Do? Do? You surely don't mean... Fliss's eyes darted about, but there was no one close enough to hear them. You're not really thinking of trying to get him out, are you? I don't know what I'm thinking yet, Betty replied, but it's obvious he knows things, things we thought were secret. Granny would never have told him about the bag. And what he said about the curse starting here, if there's a chance it can be broken, then we can't ignore it. But Betty, helping him escape would be a crime. I know he says he's innocent, but if we were caught... Slow down a minute, Betty interrupted. We only have his word he's innocent. We don't know anything about him except that he's smart. We certainly shouldn't trust him. She began walking towards the ferry as it docked, trying to order her thoughts. Last night she had vowed to change their future, and now Colton seemed to be offering that possibility in exchange for a huge risk. The question was, were they brave enough to secure their freedom by giving him his? Granny must think he knows something, or else why would she keep visiting him? This could be it, Fliss. If he's telling the truth, we could change things. For all of us. Big if. Fliss looked thoughtful. When he asked if I was just for show, do you suppose that means he finds me pretty? Felicity Widdershins, Betty said through gritted teeth. Don't even think about it. The boat was waiting by the jetty and people were boarding. Betty and Fliss joined the end of the line, feet sinking into the damp shingle. They handed over their return tickets and climbed on behind an off-duty warder. Unlike many of the other warders, he had a kindly but weary face. His eyes were fixed on mainland Crowstone, like he couldn't wait to arrive. Long night? The ferryman asked him as they pushed off from the jetty. The warder looked round, his eyes sunken. Always a long night in that place. The days, too. Heard it's haunted, said the ferryman, his eyes glinting ghoulishly. Ever seen anything? Betty leaned closer to listen. She had the feeling the ferryman would know of any tales of hauntings and was looking to amuse himself with his passengers' reactions. She glanced uneasily at the prison, relieved to see it slipping away. She had never believed in ghosts, but then she hadn't believed in magical objects or curses either. The warder hesitated. Not seen anything exactly, but others say they have. Such as? the ferryman asked, picking up speed. Fliss was starting to hunch over, gripped by seasickness once more. Come on, tell us some ghost stories to pass the time. 
The warder blew into his chapped hands. He looked like all he wanted was a quiet journey back. Some say they've seen flickering lights up in the tower, he said eventually, and a red-haired figure at the windows. Betty stiffened at the mention of the tower. What was its link to the curse and its crumbling stones? Once again, the memory of a story surfaced, one all the children of Crowstone knew, of a girl imprisoned there who had flung herself from the window. The Widdershins girls had heard it in the schoolyard rather than at home. Granny had never liked repeating the tale and was so superstitious that she refused to even say the girl's name. And now Betty couldn't quite remember it. Sonia? Sophia? They say she haunts the tower, the warder continued. The marshes, too. Sightings, whispered words. How many of them are genuine, who knows? I dare say some stories are made up by bored prisoners and others by long-serving warders looking to frighten the new ones. But a lot of them ring true. Too many, for my liking. And you? the ferryman asked. He wore an unpleasant little smirk, apparently enjoying the fear on the faces of some of his passengers. You said you'd never seen anything. I've heard things. Words being chanted in the tower, when it's empty. The rest of the boat's passengers were so quiet now that the only sounds were the oars cutting through the water and Fliss taking deep, slow breaths. What words? the ferryman prompted. The same words carved into the walls inside. Malice, injustice, betrayal, escape, the warder replied. The shadows under his eyes seemed to darken. They say if you speak her name three times, she appears. He ran his tongue over cracked lips. Saucia Spellthorn. Saucia Spellthorn, Betty thought to herself, her flesh prickling with goose pimples. Yes, that was it. Silence hung in the air. No one repeated the name a second time, or spoke again for the rest of the journey, but the warder's words were hooked into Betty's mind like little claws. Malice, injustice, betrayal. Were those the perfect ingredients for a curse? It seemed to fit, because for Saoirse Spellthorn there had been no escape. But how, then, was she connected to the Widdershins? Betty's gaze slid to the tower as the idea churned uneasily, mixing with thoughts of Colton and his dangerous proposal like mud and seawater. When the ferry arrived on the other side of the marshes, the sky had darkened with thick clouds gathering overhead. Betty and Fliss were the last to get off, as Fliss was still shaky, sighing with relief as she stepped onto dry land. Ahead of them, the other passengers trickled away into the streets, Where's that warder? Fliss asked. Her voice was still weak, but she looked less sickly now. Betty nodded. Over there, up by Thimble Street. Why? Let's catch up to him. Perhaps he could tell us why Colton is in there. Yes, thought Betty, pushing thoughts of the tower to the back of her mind. Here was a chance to learn how dangerous Colton really was and whether they could trust what he said. They hurried round the corner, just as the warder was about to vanish through the door of a cottage. He paused as Fliss called out in a thin croak, then approached, eyeing them curiously. Can I help you? We wondered if you could tell us anything about one of the prisoners. Fliss gave a wobbly smile, which still managed to be charming. 
His name is Colton, Prisoner 513. The warder shook his head and then chuckled, not unkindly. Do you know how many inmates are in that place? More than a thousand. Fliss bit her lip, nodding. Very well. Thank you anyway. She turned away, but the warder lingered by the door, watching them. Another idea occurred to Betty. What about Barney Widdishins? He was moved recently to another prison. Do you know why? He gave them a sympathetic look. Your pa, is it? Fliss nodded tightly. A lot of the prisoners have been moved, said the warder. More are being shipped out over the next few weeks. More? More prisoners are being moved? Betty asked, her voice rising in alarm. If Colton was snatched away like their father, their opportunities to get more information or make any deal with him would vanish. Who? He shrugged. It's all kept hush-hush until the last minute. Has to be, for safety reasons. Fliss tugged at Betty's arm, pulling her away. You've been most helpful, thank you, she called. The warder tipped his hat, retreating into the cottage, and the two girls hurried along the lane. Did you hear that? Betty asked. They're transferring more prisoners. What if Colton is one of them? If he knows how to break the curse, we can't let him slip through our fingers. Maybe he won't be moved, said Fliss, but we should try to meet with him again. There may not be time. Betty's mind was racing. Granny's been visiting him for weeks and he hasn't budged. I don't think he'll tell us anything else without us giving him what he wants. She glanced at Fliss. Maybe he'd tell you if we had more time. Me? Why me? Oh, come on, Fliss. People open up to you. Father always said you were born batting your eyelashes. Betty had tried it herself once, but Granny had only asked if she had something in her eye. Me and Granny, we're blunt. Sometimes that works, but more often it rubs people up the wrong way. If he is moved, we lose our chance. That only gives us one choice. Fliss gulped. You mean, g get him out? If we want to undo the curse, then we have to. And right now it looks like he's our best hope. What if he's lying? What if he's not? Betty shot back, then lowered her voice. Yes, he could be bluffing, but he could just as easily be telling the truth. We can't ignore what he knows already. And if he's held on this long, then he must think he has something worth trading. How would we do it? Fliss asked. Colton's right. We'll need the travelling bag. Chapter 10. Rats and Revelations The poacher's pocket was quiet that afternoon, but the girls had little chance to discuss their secret visit to the prison or plan what came next. At first, Betty and Fliss snatched moments to whisper about their discoveries, but abandoned their efforts with Granny buzzing round them like a marsh fly, nipping them with new chores every time they paused. Despite this, Betty was determined that working time didn't have to be wasted time. Now they knew of the risk of Colton being moved, every moment counted. Her grandmother had always said the inn was the gossip hub of Crowstone, so Betty decided to grab the opportunity to mine more information once the customers started arriving. She kept busy, keeping one eye on the door while topping up firewood, plugging the whistling gaps in the window frames with old rags and even sweeping fresh sawdust across the floor. You'll need a lot more than that, said Granny. Old man Crosswick gets out of the pinch later today, so things are going to get pretty messy in here. 
Her smile faded. I'll want you girls out of the way with that leery lot coming in. You can all stay upstairs. Fliss too, though goodness knows she's had enough time off this week. Betty scattered more sawdust on the floor. Granny was right. They'd need it. The Crosswicks were always in and out of prison and barely on the right side of what Granny described as hooligans. There would certainly be spitting and spillages, possibly even blood and teeth. More importantly, if Granny wanted the girls out of the way for the evening, Betty and Fliss would have time to plot then. Or perhaps even more than plot. Granny hefted a crate of mismatched bottles onto the counter, wheezing slightly. Once you've done that, tell Charlie to sort these bottles into the right crates out the back and make sure that spider she caught earlier has been put outside. Righty-ho, said Betty. You're being awfully helpful, Granny said suddenly, and her mouth went all shriveled up like a raisin. You're up to something. I'm not, Betty said indignantly, but she concentrated on the broom so she didn't have to look at Granny. Again, the feeling of being a burden weighed heavily upon her. Granny had done all she could to protect them and had enough to worry about without Betty rousing her suspicions. The memory of her harsh words filled her with shame. I'm sorry for what I said to you yesterday, about squashing the adventure out of us. I understand now. Ah. Granny's expression softened. Yes, I know, Poppet. She sighed. We've all tried ways to change things. But it's not meant to be. Sometimes you just have to accept your lot, and that's that. She turned away as the door opened, bringing in customers. But I don't accept it, Betty thought. I can't. And whatever Granny said, her visits to Colton proved that deep down, she didn't accept it either. Betty finished sweeping and then lugged the crate of empties to the back door. They clinked as she set them down in the cold air. To Betty's surprise, Charlie was already outside, sitting on an upturned crate with her back to the door. A bigger surprise was that Oi was sniffing at her in an interested, almost friendly way. Charlie sprang up, stuffing something in her pocket as Betty approached. With that, the cat hissed and stalked off, slipping through the door just before it closed. What have you got there? Betty asked. Nothing, Charlie said defiantly, her pigtails bobbing. Betty took one look at her sister's mischievous little face and knew she was up to something. You've been acting strange since we came to get you earlier. So have you, Charlie said immediately. You and Fliss sneaking around whispering, I seen you. Don't change the subject, Betty exclaimed, trying not to laugh. Evidently, she and Fliss had underestimated Charlie. Come on, out with it. She clicked her fingers, pointing at her sister's pocket, then blinked as it started to wriggle. Oh, Charlie, what have you gone and brought home this time? You can't tell, Charlie begged, her eyes huge and round. Granny will make me get rid of him. Him? Well, I think it's a him, Charlie said, as a tiny, quivering nose edged its way out of her pocket. A pair of beetle-black eyes emerged, followed by a fuzzy brown body. Do you right, Granny will make you get rid of it. It's a bleeding rat. No wonder Oi wanted to be your friend for once. You sure? Charlie lifted the creature up, tickling its ears and stroking its wormy tail. I thought it was a mouse. It's not much more than a baby, said Betty, and you need to get rid of it before Granny finds out, or any of the customers for that matter. 
and look how sweet he is. He might be now, but wait till he grows. Some of these rats on Crowstone end up the size of cats. I know, Charlie said excitedly. Betty shook her head. It's a wild animal. It wouldn't be fair to keep him. But he's poorly. Charlie lifted the rat, showing Betty his underside. Look, it's his foot. There's something wrong with it. He walks funny too, with a sort of hop. That's how I catched him. Betty peered at the rat's feet. One of the back ones was no more than a toeless stump. Some of her hardness melted. He must have been caught in a trap, poor thing. I've called him Hoppet, said Charlie. Or is that mean? I don't want him to think I'm being unkind. She took out a bread roll she'd scrounged from the church and broke off a piece, feeding it to the rat. Betty raised an eyebrow. It was almost unknown for Charlie to save food. Normally it was scoffed immediately. I'm sure he won't mind what you call him all the while he's getting fed, said Betty. Then more gently she said, He's still got to go, Charlie. If Granny finds out... Charlie's bottom lip jutted out obstinately. You won't tell, will you? I won't need to. Granny will smell a... Well, rat. That rat, sooner or later. So don't say you weren't warned. Betty nudged the crate of bottles with her toe, keen to get back inside. These need to be sorted into the proper crates. Do it now before it gets dark. She left Charlie sulking out in the yard and returned inside. A few more familiar faces had trickled in now, settling on tables close to the fire. Her gaze rested on the sweet shop owners, Henny and Buster Hubbard. In their spare time, they were fonder of gambling than gossip, but they'd always lived in Crowstone and were friendly enough. Perhaps they knew of some clue in its history. Hello, young Betty, said Buster, emptying his dominoes onto the table. You playing? Hoping to rob us blind, are ye? Betty grinned. Not today, Buster. Let's just play for fun. She helped turn the dominoes face down on the table before Henny shared them out. Actually, there was something I wanted to ask. Buster nodded. I'm listening. The prison tower, Betty said, trying to sound light and conversational, like she was simply looking for a story to pass the time. Do you know much about it? Let's see now. Buster selected a domino and put it on the table, face up. Before it was part of the prison, it was part of the old Crowstone Fortress, as you must know. That survived for, oh, hundreds of years, and... He paused. Why are you asking us? Bunny's sure to know more than we do. Probably, Betty admitted, but she doesn't like talking about the tower, the same as she won't go near the crossroads. Other than the tale of the girl who fell from the tower, there's not much to know said Henny. There's plenty that's been said about her being a witch, but it was so long ago that there are only two things that are certain. Firstly, that she was locked in there against her will, and secondly, that she fell from the window to her death. She took out a tin of sweets from the shop she and Buster owned and removed the lid, offering it to Betty. Betty thanked her and rummaged through the tin, lingering over a jumping jackdaw before settling on a marshmallow. Henny smiled and passed her the jumping jackdaw, too. Betty grinned, eating the jackdaw first. The popping candy crackled on her tongue. Why did people call her a witch? she asked. There appeared to be plenty of ghost stories about the girl in the tower, but this was the first whiff of witchery that Betty had heard. She felt a tingle of fear mixed with excitement. Witches and curses went together like magpies and silver. Perhaps a piece of the puzzle was about to slot into place.
It's said by some that the will-o'-the-wisps on the marshes are her doing, Buster said. Betty remembered the flickering marsh lights she had seen on the ferry just before Granny had caught up with her and Charlie. She popped the marshmallow into her mouth. Some suppose they're fragments of her memories, trapped on the marshland like she was in the tower. Others say they're curses, luring travellers to drown. Buster shrugged. Me? I reckon they could be something as simple as marsh gases letting off. But in a place like this, Betty, stories are never in short supply. Just as well, Betty said, seeing as there's not much else. Buster chuckled. You'll feel that way now, but you'll soon be old enough to go off on all those adventures you've been planning. You won't be stuck here forever. A hard, achy lump formed in Betty's throat. She fussed with her dominoes, avoiding Buster's eyes. If only he knew. The tower itself is a mystery, Buster went on. It should have collapsed when the rest of the ancient fortress was destroyed in the war, yet it survived. Something not right about that, if you ask me. But like I said, I'm not the best person to ask. Buster peered at his dominoes like a dragon hoarding its treasure. But if you add more questions, there is someone else worth talking to. Who? Buster tilted his head. Old Seamus Fingerty over there. Betty groaned. Buster had indicated the thin, straggly-haired fellow who always looked as though he was plotting a murder. If anyone knows about that place, it'd be him, said Henny. That's if you can get a civil word out of him. He was a prisoner, wasn't he? Betty asked. There was no keeping this sort of thing quiet. Buster nodded. Did a long stretch too, because... He lowered his voice. Before that, he was a warder. And no one likes a crooked warder. What was his crime? Smuggling folk off torment. They reckon he'd helped dozens escape before he was caught. I reckon that's the only reason he's not there himself now. Too risky. Knows too much about escape routes. Escape routes. The words sent a tremor through Betty as she thought of Colton. She watched Fingerty with renewed interest. Perhaps the old crook might be of use in more ways than one. She thanked Buster and Henny, then abandoned her dominoes. Fliss was wiping down the counter. Where's Granny? Betty asked as she drew level with her sister. Out in the office, making a start on the banking. Reckon she'll be back any time soon. Fliss shrugged. She told me to call her if it gets busy. Why? Quickly, Betty recounted what she had learned about the tower and its mysterious prisoner. Fliss's eyes went round and wide. And Buster thinks he... Betty nodded at Fingerty. Can tell us more. Fliss looked doubtful. Good luck with that. It's hard enough getting a please or a thank you out of him. That's where you come in said Bessie, giving her sister a meaningful look. What's he drink? Speckled pig, usually. Port if he's especially grumpy. Why? Give him his next two on the house. Betty? Fliss protested. Granny will go barmy if she finds out I'm giving away free drinks, especially to a miserable old coot like him. Then don't let her find out, said Bessie. If he knows anything, we need him. Excitement crackled through her like the candy she had just eaten. Perhaps Fingerty could provide a valuable clue to breaking the curse. With luck, they might not even need Colton. But he needs you, her conscience whispered as she remembered his desperation. She ignored it. This was about the Widdershins, not him. Fliss pursed her lips, then filled a glass with frothy ale. All right, 
but don't let anyone else hear or they'll all come scrounging. I'm going over, said Betty, taking the glass. Warn me if you hear Granny coming. Ring the bell or something. I can't, Fliss said indignant. Everyone would think it was time to leave. Something else then, Betty said impatient. Start singing that old nursery rhyme, the magpie and the merry pennies. She pulled herself up to her full height, which admittedly wasn't very impressive. Then she walked over to Fingerty's table. She had never been this close to him before, and now found that he smelled rather stale, like unwashed socks. His grey hair was long and straggly, draped like curtains either side of his leathery face. Excuse me, she said, when he continued to stare out of the window. Mr Fingerty? For a moment, he gazed ahead silently as though he hadn't heard. Betty's excitement fizzled out a little. Perhaps she should have sent Fliss over instead. A salty old grouch like Fingerty would need sweetening up, and Betty wasn't sure she had the charm or patience. He lifted his beer, supping slowly, then banged it down on the table, startling her. <laughs> the sound was half chuckle, half sneer. Long time since anyone's called me Mr. Oh, said Betty, what shall I call you then? Fingerty turned to look at her. He had dark eyes like grey shards of flint. The way they raked over her made her feel as though she was a pile of soggy leaves being poked with a stick, unearthing all the bugs and beetles hidden underneath. She gritted her teeth and stood her ground. If persevering with Fingerty meant she might avoid breaking Colton out of jail, then persevere she would. You're blunt for one so young, he remarked. Betty shrugged. Well, so am I, he said, and my feeling is that you want something, so you can save your niceties and clear off. What? Betty said in surprise. I haven't even told you what I want. The thought of having to help Colton escape nudged a little closer to becoming a reality, deepening her desperation. If Fingerty didn't talk, she had few options left. Fingerty's mouth twisted unpleasantly. I don't do favours for no one. What if there's something in it for you? Fingerty drained his beer, then drew his cuff across his wet upper lip. Go on, then. What? Emboldened, Betty took a seat opposite and pushed the fresh pint of speckled pig towards him. Two drinks on the house, in exchange for a little chat. Ha, huh, he said again, less nastily this time. Sitting with a known felon won't do yourself no favours. My dad's a felon. I'm used to it. He chuckled. What do you want, then? I want to hear what you know about Crowstone Tower. Fingerty frowned deeply, carving lines into his already wrinkled forehead. The prison tower. Common knowledge, most of it. I know some of it. Betty said, that it was part of the old fortress and that they held a witch there, Saoirse Spellthorn. Is anything else you might know that I'm interested in? Fingerty raked her over again with his eyes. What are you asking? Betty returned his gaze as boldly as she dared. If I tell you that, then it'll have to be one drink, not two. Fair enough. Fingerty scratched his bristly chin with a too long fingernail. Sorsha Spellthorn. Some called her a witch, but a better word would be sorceress. Something jolted through Betty's bones. Sorceress? It sounded grander than witch and certainly capable of a curse. 
Anything Fingerty knew about how and why might lead her to the breaking of it. See, rumours of witchcraft tend to be small. Fingerty continued, petty, lotions for warts, potions for love or revenge. But Sorsha, she was different, or so I heard. Is that what got her locked up? Depends who you listen to. See, some say she was using her sorcery to make trouble. Others, well, they think she was imprisoned under false charges. He stared into the fire, and his sullen expression softened to something that became almost haunted. And you're talking about something that happened a long time ago, well over a century. Think folks are superstitious now? It's nothing compared to back then. What do you think? Betty asked. Doesn't matter what I think. Fingerty huffed out a long breath, his cheeks puffing out like a stuffed goose. But I'll tell you what I know, or at least what I've pieced together, if you can stop interrupting for one pecking minute. I'm the one telling this story, and I'll tell it my way, and the best way is to start at the beginning. Got it? Betty nodded, not daring to say any more. No one knew where she came from, said Fingerty, settling back in his chair, which is strange, considering that almost everyone knows where she ended up. He supped his beer. Sorsha Spellthorn was born on the misty marshes on a stormy winter night in a little rowing boat. There's no official record of her birth, but it's believed it was midwinter. The shortest day, the longest night. For three people, it was their last night. A chill breeze blew round Betty's ankles as someone entered the poacher's pocket. She leaned closer to the fire. It appeared on the marshes out of nowhere. Fingerty went on. The little boat, savaged by the storm and washed onto the mudflats, broken and leaking water. It got stuck, began sinking. Torment was the closest, but the boat was still far out and the weather too wild to risk. When the islanders on Torment looked through their spyglasses, they saw a woman stranded. Three people took a boat out to save her, two men and a woman. Little is known about them, except that they happened to be a spy and two smugglers. When they reached the woman, they discovered that she had just given birth to a tiny baby girl. Somehow, they got them both into the boat with them, just moments before the damaged vessel was sucked into the marshes. Then came the gruelling journey back to torment. Along the way, one of the smugglers and the spy were lost to the marshes, and the next morning, after bringing the mother and the child safely back to land, the other smuggler died too, his lungs having taken on too much water during the rescue. Fingerty paused, shaking his head. Betty took a breath, feeling a sting of tears pricking her eyelids, partly for the tale she was hearing, and partly because somehow she couldn't help but think of the drowning of her own mother. They lived their lives on torment in disgrace, she mumbled tearfully, and yet they gave their lives to save two strangers. Yep, and that's not all they gave. When people die like that, sacrificing themselves, the baby... Fingerty glowered into his beer. Even now they're known simply by their crimes, not by name, but for their mistakes. No one is wholly good or wholly bad. Sometimes the best people are capable of doing the worst things, and the worst people can be capable of doing the best. The most honourable and heroic. 
despite whatever they've done in the past. The baby, Bessie asked. That was Saoirse. Fingerty nodded. They stayed on torment out of gratitude for their lives. Saoirse grew from a baby to a girl to a young woman, and people began to notice things about her sea, odd things that made no sense. Like what? Betty asked, sensing that Fingerty's pause this time invited an interruption. He nodded at his glass. Somehow it had been drained without her noticing. She snatched it and hurried to the counter, tapping impatiently as she waited for Fliss to finish serving someone else. In her rush to get to Betty, Fliss slopped beer all over the side of the glass she was carrying and practically threw the customer's change at them. Betty watched as the young man Fliss had served scrabbled to collect the coins rolling over the counter. You're lucky Granny didn't see you do that, and that he's sweet on you. Fliss waved a dismissive hand. Apparently she'd forgotten that not so long ago she'd been sweet on him too. Typical Fliss the flit, thought Betty. What's Fingerty have to say? Fliss asked. I'm still finding out. He knows things about that girl in the tower. Betty said, experiencing a surge of adrenaline at what she was about to hear. She hoped she'd be able to carry the drink back without spilling it. And he's not finished yet. Hurry up. Fliss held a fresh glass under the speckled pig and heaved at the pump. Frothy beer gushed out. Is he as awful as folks say? Yes and no, Betty answered. He's a rotten old stick, but he took less coaxing than I expected. She said this with a measure of pride, glad that she, too, could be persuasive, even if it boiled down to bribery rather than charm. Fliss set the full glass on the counter. Maybe all he needs is a bit of kindness. Perhaps he's glad of someone listening to him for once. Betty snorted. Or maybe you're drunk on beer fumes. Soon as the free drinks dry up, so will the stories. Just you watch. Betty returned to Fingerty's table, putting the beer in front of him, she sat down, aware that Fliss was lurking close by to eavesdrop. Fingerty took a slow mouthful of beer, leaving a creamy moustache of froth on his upper lip. Right, he said, settling back once more. Now listen. And so began the story of Saoirse Spellthorn. Chapter 11 Saoirse's Tale Splat! The egg whizzed past Saoirse and hit Prue right in her middle. Somehow it bounced off her and cracked as it landed on her feet, splattering the slimy white and golden yolk all over her shoes. Hey! Saoirse yelled in fury, but the culprits had already dodged away into an alley at the back of the marketplace, their laughter ringing in the air. Saoirse considered chasing them, but her little sister's sobs kept her where she was. It's all right, Prue she muttered, kneeling at her sister's feet with her handkerchief. She wiped the mess away as best she could, shaking fragments of white shell onto the dusty road. She sensed people were staring, but in the busy marketplace they didn't linger. Saoirse was used to stares. There, most of it's off. Did you see who it was? Prue hesitated. The pig-keeper's lad and a few others. They were shouting things about us, about Ma. She sniffled, blinking away more tears. Don't cry, Saoirse said more gently now. I'll bet they weren't even aiming at you. They probably meant it for me. 
Instantly, Prue stopped crying, looking brighter, and Sorsha was the one feeling unsettled, though she couldn't quite explain why. What were they saying? Sorsha asked, even though she could already guess. They said we weren't proper sisters, that you and Ma are witches that came in off the marshes, that you sacrificed people with your bad magic so that you both survived, and that she witched my pa, and then... Hush, Sorsha said softly, aware that Prue's shrill voice was attracting curious glances. Prue stared at her, her strange eyes unblinking. They didn't look a bit alike. While Sorsha had their mother's dark and unusual looks, tawny hair, brown skin and green eyes, Prudence mirrored the pale-skinned, mud-brown-haired islanders. And her eyes, they were so unusually pale, it was hard to say whether they were grey, green, blue, or had any colour at all. A word often used to describe them was fishy, and although Sorsha felt it was unkind, she couldn't help but privately agree. Sorsha sighed, collecting the basket and tucking the soggy handkerchief into her pinny. Come on. She took Prue's hand and tugged her away from the marketplace in the direction of home. When she tried to release Prue's smaller, clammy hand a few minutes later, Prue held on stubbornly. At eight, she was only two years younger than Sorsha, but at times the age gap felt larger. We are sisters. Sorsha said once they were in the quiet lanes. Doesn't matter what anyone else says. They fell into silence, walking briskly. Finally, Prue released Sorsha's hand to wrap her shawl more tightly around herself. It was a chilly spring morning, and on the surrounding meadows, patches of frost still sparkled. Cottages were dotted like breadcrumbs along the road. Their own was further away than all the rest, an outsider just as they were. As the meadow opened out, a brisk wind blew up, reminding them that the clifftop was not far away. I wonder what it's like over there, Prue said, as she always did, nodding to the hazy land across the water. Better, Sorsha replied. Sometimes when they went walking with Ma, they'd gaze across to mainland Crowstone from a high point on the cliffs. On a clear day, you could see the rooftops and church spire and the little boats on the water. People are free to come and go as they please. Not like here. My father's family is over there, Prue said with a degree of pride. Ma said so. Could well be true, Sorsha replied, but you've never met them, and you probably never will. Prue's chin jutted obstinately. Sometimes people can get there. Sometimes, yes. Ma had heard that in the past, people on Torment had earned their way across to mainland Crowstone with some good deed for the better of all. But in the ten years Sorsha had been on the island, the only ones who had left were those in boxes sailing over to their final resting places on Lament. Their mother never spoke about Sorsha's father or where they had come from before they'd arrived on Torment. Prue's father hadn't been around for long either. Newly released from the prison and banished to torment, he had been besotted with Sorsha's mother from the moment he arrived, despite warnings from other islanders. Sorsha had a hazy memory of bright blue eyes and a weathered face, but Prue did not recall her father at all. She had been just a year old when he'd gone fishing out by lament and never returned after his boat was swept onto the treacherous rocks known as the Devil's Teeth. 
The gossip hinted that this was their mother's witchcraft too, but as the years had passed, the focus shifted to Saoirse and things about her that couldn't be explained. She hadn't realised she was different at first. How was she to know that other children couldn't hide as well as she could, or weren't able to see a person just by thinking about them, or the other thing that couldn't be put down to slyness or imagination? Before she knew it, she was the one the villagers tugged their own children away from, the one no one wanted to play with. Over time, she grew skilled at hiding these gifts, but not before they had been noticed, and suspicion lurked in every pointed finger. Lost in her thoughts, Saoirse's first clue that she had foolishly let her guard down was a clod of half-frozen earth that flew out of the meadow and skipped along the path. She gasped, grabbing Prue and ducking next to the hedgerow. The catcall followed moments later. Hide and seek! It wasn't a friendly request for a game, but a taunt, a jeer, a dare. Come and find us. Keep down, she told Prue. Slowly she stood, gazing across the frosty meadows. The long grasses rippled in the wind, giving nothing away. She jumped as another lump of dirt cracked against the path. This time there was a large stone at its centre. Her skin prickled with fear, like a dog's hackles rising. She didn't know how many there were or where they were hidden, but she and Prue were alone out here. The nearest cottage was a way off, and knocking wouldn't guarantee help. Not for them, anyway. Saoirse, Prue whispered. Where are they? Saoirse ducked down again. I don't know. Let's just go. If we hurry, it's a long way. I'd be able to outrun them, but you won't. I need to do something. Prue's pale eyes were fearful. Ma says ignore them. Ignoring them doesn't work. It just makes them try harder. Another stone hit the path. This time there was no doubt. The stone wasn't a mistake, caught in a dense lump of dirt. It was large and rough, meant to do harm. She had promised Ma she wouldn't, but Saoirse knew now it was an eggshell promise shattered by their missiles. She needed to stay safe. There was also a tiny part of her that wanted to teach them a lesson. Keep quiet and still, she told Prue. Saoirse, Prue began, but Saoirse squeezed her arm with a warning look and Prue quieted. Saoirse closed her eyes, letting her mind roam. Already she could feel it crackling, a power ready to surge. Oh, but it felt good to use it again, especially after suppressing it for so long. Let me see them, she commanded silently. And like someone in a dream, she found her mind's eye was looking down like a bird hovering above the field and searching out field mice. Quickly she spotted them, spread out in the high grass. There were two of them either side of the path, and her and Prue on the path in the middle. They were surrounded. Saoirse's face grew warm with rage. She wanted to give them something to really wonder about. Looking closer at each boy, she located Samuel, the pigkeeper's son, an oily-looking thing with a nose like a lump of squashed clay. He was the biggest and meanest of the group. There was a moment's hesitation. It had been so long since she had done this, but if anything, the unused power seemed to have increased rather than faded. Her mind sharpened and flexed. 
Instantly, there came the sensation of weightlessness, of the ground slipping from under her feet, and the whoosh of wind whistling in her ears. Adrenaline surged through her in a giddy, thrilling wave. Her arrival at Samuel's back was announced with a rustle of brittle grasses. He whipped round, open-mouthed. How did you... He grappled for words, crippled by fear. His eyebrows curled into question marks. They both knew there was no way she could have sneaked up so soundlessly. Until now, he hadn't really believed the stories about her. They had just been an excuse to pick on someone, anyone, the easiest target. Found you, she said softly. Soft, but not like a baby dove or butter. Soft like a kitten's paw, just before its claws shot out. This is a warning, pig boy. My turn, she said, backing into the long grass just far enough to hide herself. Once again, the ground whipped away from under her. She arrived back with her sister with nothing more than a light scratch of gravel under her heels. Prue's eyes held the same awe Saucer had seen in the pig boys, but none of the fear. You can still do it, she whispered. I knew you could. It never went away. I just stopped doing it. Teach me, Prue begged, fingers clutching at her greedily. I've told you before, it's not something that can be taught, Saucer said. Even if it was, this wouldn't be the time. What did you do? Prue whispered. I gave the pig keeper's son a scare he won't forget. Oh, Saucer, Ma will be so angry. Hush, I didn't do anything he can prove, just enough to rattle him. They quieted, stepping back into a dip in the hedgerow as the pig boy emerged from the meadow further up the lane. Pale-faced, he gave a low whistle before stalking back towards the village, casting nervous looks back. One by one, his friends scrambled out of the long grass after him. Mutters of witch and fish eyes floated back on the air. When the boys were finally gone, Saoirse turned to Prue. Her sister's strange light eyes were curiously bright. Fish eyes. The cruel comment echoed in Saoirse's head. What if they tell? Prue said as they began walking the opposite way. Let them, said Saoirse. She glanced at her sister, afraid she had scared her, but if anything, her pinched white face looked thrilled. But people would talk. They've always talked. Maybe next time they might just leave us alone. A shadow flickered in Prue's bleached eyes. I wish I could do the things you can do. Probably best you can't, Saoirse sighed, starting to regret her hot-headed reaction now that her blood had begun to cool. It only leads to trouble. Hide and seek. Trouble, Prue echoed. But you've never used your magic for... Don't, Saoirse hissed, looking about them fearfully. Never say that word. You don't know who might be listening. But you've never used it for bad things, Prue persisted. Saoirse frowned. Of course not. I've hardly used it at all. But if I could, I'd want to help people, not hurt them. Not even if they made you really, really angry, Prue breathed, her eyes wide and fixed on Saoirse's face. They glinted with excitement and longing. Perhaps, Saoirse admitted, to herself as much as to Prue. Her voice dropped to a barely audible whisper. I've never thought about it before. No one's ever made me angry enough. Prue looked up at her, slipping her hand into Saoirse's again. 
She was smiling. Chapter 12. The Travelling Bag The merry pennies in the meadow, silver by the night, were hopped upon by midnight imps who danced by pale moonlight. The sound of Fliss's self-conscious warbling snapped Betty out of Fingerty's story and into the present. She stared at the leathery-faced man, wishing she could stay immersed in his tale, but the tuneless singing grew louder and more urgent, which could only mean Granny was near. The magpie, oh, that crafty crook, stole some to stuff his nest, but dropped them in Ma's cooking soup. I needn't say the rest. Betty stood up abruptly as Fingerty drained his glass. I'm sorry, I have to get back to work. I was just getting started, Fingerty said, outraged. I know. Betty was unable to keep the frustration from her voice. Clearly, Fingerty had merely scratched the surface of this dark chapter of Crowstone Tower. While it wasn't enough to confirm whether Saucer's history was connected to the Widdishins, the tower's link to the curse made it entirely possible. More than that, she felt she was on the verge of learning something crucial, although perhaps this was just wishful thinking. Either way, she had to hear the rest of the story. The question was, when? Fingerty looked tipsy now and seemed to have one quizzical eye on Betty and the other on Fliss. He stuck one finger in his ear, grimacing. This what Bonnie calls entertainment. Bang, bang, went the privy door. Bang, bang, for two days. And cackle, cackle, went the jackdaws at the magpie's naughty ways. Uh... Betty spied Granny behind the counter just as Fliss's rendition reached its ear-splitting finale. There was silence, then a few awkward claps before conversations resumed in their usual low hum. Betty made a pretense at wiping the table and collected the empty glass. Thanks, she told Fingerty, keeping her voice low. Can I talk to you again sometime? Fingerty squinted at her, evidently smarting at being cut short. Lips sealed tight unless the price is right. Betty glanced at Granny, who was busy telling a red-faced Fliss that her singing sounded like a cat being strangled. Yes, of course, you'll get more drinks on the house. She took the empty glass to the bar, Fingerty's tail squirming in her mind like an ant's nest. She desperately wanted to tell Fliss what she had learned about the girl in the tower, but Granny was too close. She stood stoutly behind Fliss, eyes narrowed. Where's Charlie? Still in the yard, I think, said Betty, sorting the bottles, like you said. She's taking her time, said Granny, looking suspicious. I hope she's not burying more dead creatures. There'll be more graves out there than there are on lament at this rate. She turned swiftly, heading for the back door. Great idea about the singing. Fliss said sarcastically, glowering with humiliation. Next time I'll just break a glass to get your attention. Your singing could do that anyway, Betty said, only half aware of Fliss's huff of indignance. She eyed Fingerty, wishing she could see into that gnarled head of his. There was no time to continue Saucer's tale now, and little time to make a decision about breaking Colton out, not if there was a risk he could be moved. And if Fingerty didn't have the answers, they needed Colton. Yet perhaps Fingerty could help with that too.
With Granny gone for another minute or two in search of Charlie, Betty decided to risk it. What now? Fingerty said, scowling as she returned. One more thing, Betty said hurriedly. I heard that you were, um, inside for helping folks escape from torment. Oh, you did, did you? She ignored the meanness in his voice and rushed on. I was wondering how, how you got away with it. Fact I got caught suggests I wasn't very good at it, he sneered. No one gets away with it forever. I meant the ones before. I've heard there were lots before you got caught. Fingerty's hand shot out and grabbed her wrist. Now you listen, girlie, he hissed. I don't know what you're mixed up in and I don't care, but take my advice. You stay away from the sorrow isles. Ain't nothing but bad luck. Betty twisted out of his grasp. If you can't tell me how you did it, then tell me how you got caught. He shook his head, chuckling suddenly. You're stubborn as they come, girl. And you're as mean as everyone says, Betty retorted, rubbing her wrist. She glanced at the counter. Fliss was pulling ale but watching nervously. There was still no sign of Granny. Meaner, Fingerty snapped. But you've got guts and I like that. All right. That I'll tell you. Distraction, that's how. It was one rule I always followed, and it always worked, until the time I was careless. What kind of distraction? Anything. A brawl in the prison, the fairy stuck on the marshes. You divert attention from what's really going on. He gave a cunning smile. Folks have no love for the warders. They'll do anything if the price is right. The smile slid off his face as he settled back in his chair. Now go away and leave me in peace. I've said enough for one day. Until next time, then, Betty said. Can't wait, Fingerty muttered sarcastically. She returned to the counter just as Granny came back in from the yard, shooing Charlie upstairs into the warm. Well? Fliss asked. Betty went to sit on a bar stool, then yelped and jumped away as five pinpricks pierced her bottom. She glared down into lazily blinking yellow eyes and realised she had almost sat on oi. She remained standing, speaking quickly of what Fingerty had told her, about Saoirse and her half-sister Prue living on torment, and the strange abilities of Saoirse's that marked her out as different. But how does any of this link to the Widdershins? Fliss asked, eyeing Fingerty doubtfully. I don't know for sure, but somehow all this is connected. I can just feel it. Saoirse ended up in that tower, which is where Colton says the curse all began too. And let's not forget, she fell from it, just like the stones. Fliss, I really think he might have the answer we need. But what about Fingerty? Fliss whispered. If you think what he knows is connected, he's the safer option, where we're not risking our necks. We need time to get to what he knows, time Colton might not have, and Colton seems convinced he knows how to break the curse. Fliss's bottom lip wobbled. And if he doesn't? Betty let out a shaky breath. Then I guess we spend our days staring at these walls and stinking of beer. Maybe stinking of beer isn't so bad. Fliss sniffed herself and sighed. Or maybe it is. So, how? And when? She gulped. Oh, cripes. We're really doing this, aren't we? Fingerty said when he smuggled people off torment, he always used a distraction. That's what we need, said Betty, so we won't be missed. What kind of distraction? 
a rowdy night here, one where Granny wants us safely out of the way would be ideal. You mean something like Old Man Crosswick's release? Fliss said uneasily. Yes. But that's tonight. Betty nodded, anticipation thrumming in her chest like a second heart. I know, but if more prisoners are being moved soon, like that warder said, then we've no time to lose. What are you two whispering about? Betty jumped. Granny had appeared soundlessly at the door to the bar, her shrewd eyes upon them. The girls sprang apart guiltily. Nothing, they chorused. Hmm. Granny stamped over to them, lowering her voice. I think I can guess. Betty stiffened. Surely Granny couldn't have heard much over the hum of conversations around them. As much as I'm sad that you both now have the burden of you-know-what on your shoulders, at least some good has come of it, Granny said, smiling wistfully. The two of you huddle together and whispering just like you used to, she continued. I haven't seen that in a long time. There was a forced cheer in her voice, a looking on the bright side tone to it, and Betty thought she knew why. Speaking about the curse may have brought Fliss and Betty together again, but it was the reason for the distance between them in the first place. Now then, said Granny, Betty, you can get the dinner on upstairs and watch Charlie while you're up there. She glared at Oi, who was loitering on the counter, sniffing drops of spilled beer. Fliss, feed that mangy cat before it starts eating the customers. Betty glanced back as she headed for the stairs. Fliss caught her eye and the two shared a conspiratory look that, despite the circumstances, sent a thrilling tingle through Betty. The Widdershin sisters had business to attend to. It wasn't until later that they got their chance. Betty was scouring a stubborn pan when Granny emerged from the bathroom with a freshly scrubbed Charlie. Keep still, child, Granny was saying. I need to comb out that bird's nest of a head of yours before it dries. Fliss looked up from the sock she was mending. Oh, Charlie, you look so sweet under all that dirt, like a little pink piglet. Charlie stuck her tongue out as Granny chased her into the bedroom, brandishing a comb. My turn, Fliss declared, throwing down the sock. Betty groaned. Bath day was only once a week, but Fliss took forever and always left bits of dried lavender and rose petals stuck to the tub. She'd been hoping Fliss would wait until later to get her bath, for it would have been a chance for the two of them to plan while Granny was busy with Charlie. But evidently, Fliss had other ideas. Betty looked up to the shelf above the sink for some salt to help her scrub, then jumped back with a scream, dropping the pan at her feet with a loud clang. There, hovering in mid-air over the sink like an apparition, was a hazy, shimmering image of Fliss's face. Boo! it said. Betty gaped, her heart smashing against her ribcage. Could this be something to do with... Betty? Granny called. What's all that racket? A finger appeared in front of Fliss's wavering face. Shh, don't tell Granny. I'm using the mirror. Betty? Uh, everything's fine, Granny, Betty called. Just me being clumsy. She peered at the image of Fliss suspended ghost-like before her. Now she had recovered from the surprise, she could see soap suds in her sister's hair. You really do look strange, you know, floating there like that. How did you make it work? I just looked into the mirror and thought of you, said Fliss. There was a sense of jubilation about her, the same way Betty had felt when she had used the nesting dolls. And there you were, reflected back at me. 
Is this the first time you've used it? Fliss looked slightly guilty. It's the first time I've used it to speak to anyone, but I've... I've watched people a few times without them knowing. Felicity Widdershins! Bessie exclaimed, pretending to be shocked. Like who? Let me guess. Jack Humble? No, Fliss blustered. Well, once. Annoyance crossed her face. He was sweet-talking that awful fay. You know, the one who works in the fishmongers? She pursed her lips. So that's the end of that. She paused. I thought about using it to see father, but I've never quite managed to go through with it. Not even now you know he's not in Crowstone. Especially now. Fliss bit her lip. If he's somewhere worse, I wouldn't want to see. Betty thought of the leech emblem on father's letters. It was hard to imagine prisons worse than Crowstone. Her thoughts returned to Colton. As soon as Granny's busy with the Crosswicks, we get that bag. In the pause that followed, she realised she could no longer hear Bunny's voice. Darn it! I think Granny's finished with Charlie. You better put that mirror down in case she comes in here and sees what you're up to. To be continued, said Fliss in a spooky voice. Then, oh, bother. I've been in here so long I'm wrinkling up like a raisin. The apparition-like image of Fliss's face vanished and Betty was left with a far less exciting sight of the blackened tin she was still scrubbing. After Betty had bathed and washed her hair, which dried to a spectacular frizz, Granny settled Charlie to sleep and returned downstairs. At once, Betty and Fliss sprang into action. My room, quickly, said Fliss. Fliss's room was smaller than the one Betty and Charlie shared and far tidier, which was just as well due to the fussy trinkets, homemade rosewater scent and love notes everywhere. Got the bag yet? Betty asked. Fliss shook her head. Still need to find it, but I thought it'd be sensible to look in on Colton before... before we do this. Betty nodded. You're right. There's no point in us arriving in his cell if the warders are patrolling. We need to know our timing's right. Fliss took the mermaid mirror from her dressing table. Leaning over it, she whispered, Let me see Colton. At once, a hazy mist clouded the mirror's surface. Betty leaned closer, wide-eyed and feeling slightly guilty, like she was listening at a door. The glass cleared, revealing a tiny, darkened cell with an iron-barred door. A hunched figure lay shivering on a thin mattress. His teeth were chattering and his eyes were closed, lips moving in what Betty could only guess was a silent prayer. Thin lines had been scratched into the wall next to him all the days he had spent there. Betty looked away. It was easy to see why Colton was desperate to get out. So desperate he'd say anything to escape. Uncomfortable, Betty kept the doubt unspoken. She was desperate too, she reminded herself. The stakes for her and her family were just the same. Freedom and a new life without this curse they didn't deserve. Silently, Fliss turned the mirror face down, breaking the vision. I can't help feeling sorry for him. So do I, Betty admitted. She let out a slow breath. He's alone. Let's go now. Keep a lookout, said Fliss. I'll search Granny's things. They left Fliss's room. Betty stood in her own doorway, shifting from one foot to the other in a nervous dance. Her eyes were on Charlie, curled up asleep, her ears concentrating on the stairs and any sign of Granny. 
By now, the Crosswick gathering was in full swing. Someone had struck up with a fiddle and a drunken chorus was being brayed. The building rattled and thrummed as though humming along. Earlier, after Charlie had gone to sleep, Betty had stuffed rolled-up blankets under Fliss's bed covers and her own to make shapes like two sleeping figures. At a quick glance, they were convincing enough, and Granny's eyesight was poor anyway. Tucked under Betty's blankets was a note for the morning when it would become evident that the two girls were gone, though Betty planned to be back way before then. Granny, it said, we're sorry. We've taken your bag and gone to break the curse. We'll be back as soon as we can. Please don't come looking for us, and please don't be too angry. Betty and Fliss. Would Charlie be the one to find it, or would it be Granny wondering why her two eldest granddaughters couldn't be roused the following morning? Betty hugged herself guiltily and gazed past Charlie to the window. Through the gappy curtains, the sky was navy blue, dotted with bright stars. There would likely be a frost later. Already the air was chilly. She thought of the prison and of Colton in darkness and silence. It was probably best that he didn't know when to expect them. A muffled squeal sent her abandoning her post and skidding into Granny's room. What's the matter? Found it. Fliss was on her hands and knees, scuttling backwards. It's under the bed, but there's a huge... She trailed off and gazed past Betty with a shocked, guilty look on her face. Betty whirled round. Charlie blinked at them sleepily, barefoot and rubbing her eyes. What are you doing? Nothing, Fliss stammered. Just putting some things of Granny's away. Come on now, Poppet, back to bed. You're not putting nothing away, Charlie said stubbornly. She regarded each of them with suspicion, wide awake now. You're looking for the bag. Betty and Fliss exchanged glances, unsure what to say. I could have told you where it was. Charlie knelt and crawled under the bed, then emerged with the bag and a thick cobweb stuck to her arm. This what you were scared of? She asked, flicking the web away scornfully. Fliss pursed her lips. Give it here. Charlie shrugged and tossed it at her feet. What do you want it for? Betty sighed. Look, we need to go somewhere. There's something important we have to do, and... Are you going to the prison again? Betty and Fliss shared stricken glances. Charlie might only be six, but she wasn't silly. I'm coming too, Charlie announced. I can keep a secret. Betty shook her head. The memory of being trapped on the ferry in swirling mist and how foolish she'd been to put Charlie in that situation was all too fresh. Oh, no, you're not. It's dangerous. Then you need me, Charlie said fiercely. I can help. I'm not scared of anything. She pulled her face at Fliss. Even spiders. There was a long silence. Then finally, Betty nodded. Go and get dressed. Fliss stared at her incredulously as Charlie skipped past her in a tangle of hair and bare limbs. You can't be serious. Betty shook her head, picking up the bag. I'm not, she whispered as the wardrobe of the next room creaked. Quick, grab our coats. Fliss vanished, returning seconds later with thick overcoats. They shrugged into them, breathing fast. Fliss wound a thin scarf around the mermaid mirror and tucked it in her coat pocket. Got everything? The nesting dolls? Keys? Betty nodded, linking arms with Fliss at the exact moment Charlie came hurtling down the hall. She stopped in the doorway, open-mouthed. Betty's skin crawled with shame. I'm sorry, Charlie. No! Charlie roared. You can't!
want. Bessie flipped the bag inside out. Prisoner 513. She closed her eyes, bracing herself for the sickening whoosh. But it never came. Uh, Betty, Fliss said doubtfully. Betty opened her eyes. Charlie was staring at them with an injured expression. She stomped up to Betty. You said I could come. If you don't let me, I'll shout for Granny. You won't, Betty retorted. She was cross now, both at being discovered and the bag's failure to work. I'll lock you in the creepy cupboard if I have to. Beast! Charlie's mouth dropped open in horror. You always leave me out. Betty sighed, regretting her threat already. Charlie, we just can't take you. She stared at the bag, its musty old lining hanging inside out. Anyway, I don't think we can even use it without Granny. Hey! Charlie had snatched the bag and, quick as a fox, plunged the lining back in, then out again. Marum! she shouted. Air sucked past Betty's ankles. In the next eye blink, Charlie vanished and a gleeful giggle rang out from the girl's bedroom. Betty stepped towards the door, but there was another whoosh and Charlie reappeared, grinning. See? I can do it. And we can't, Betty said slowly as Granny's explanation came back to her. An item couldn't be swapped because it simply wouldn't work unless it was the one you owned. Charlie danced a jubilant jig. Ain't your bag, so it won't work for you. Ain't yours either, Betty snapped. I mean, isn't. Yet, Charlie said smugly. Betty glanced at Fliss. Her older sister stared back helplessly. What do we do? We can't take her with us. Can, 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 sang Charlie, twirling round with the bag. Our whole plan depends on that bag, Betty said desperately. Besides Granny, Charlie's the only one who can work it. She took a deep breath, thinking, We have to take her. No! Fliss whispered, we really, really can't. Looks like you really, really have to, said Charlie. Only until we get Colton out, Betty said. The bag is fast. We'll get him to lament, find out what he knows, then come back here in the shake of a feather. After that, he's on his own. Charlie stopped twirling. Who's Colton? Someone who can help us break the curse, Betty told her. Let's wait, Fliss begged. Think of another plan, the dolls. No, Betty argued. Not now Charlie knows. She could blab to Granny. Yep, Charlie agreed. Sometimes things just pop out. Downstairs there was a surge of voices. Let's go while it's rowdy. If it goes to plan, we could be back before closing time. And if it doesn't? Fliss snapped. What then? Betty didn't know what then, but she tried to sound brave by saying, We've got the bag, the dolls and the mirror. We'd have to be pretty unlucky for things to go wrong. Because the Widdershins are known for our luck, Fliss muttered. Betty bundled Charlie's coat on. Charlie, listen, this is going to be a real adventure, not one of our silly pretending games, so I need you to do as we say, and if we tell you to come back, you must come straight back, promise? Charlie nodded vigorously, ready to agree to just about anything. Betty swallowed down a hard lump in her throat. Everything would be all right. They would be the ones to break the wretched Widdishin's curse. This would be worth it. It had to be. Victory favours the valiant, she whispered, trying to draw strength from another of her invented mottos. Hopefully, 
this one would stick. Ready? she asked, more nervous than she had ever been. Another enthusiastic nod came from Charlie. Fliss twitched like a hunted bunny. Betty stood in the middle, one arm through Fliss's, and the other firmly linked with Charlie's. Take us to Crowstone Prison, Prisoner 513, she instructed, as another swell of noise rose from downstairs. Charlie nodded, eager to please. She cleared her throat and spoke in a firm voice. Crowstone Prison, Prisoner 531. In the time it took for Betty to shout, No! Charlie had whipped the bag inside out. All Betty could feel was her hair flying past her ears and her insides churning as she realised that before they had even arrived, their plan had already gone terribly wrong. Chapter 13 Jared The prisoner could be asleep. Betty thought to herself in the fractured moments when the wind was whizzing past her ears. Perhaps he would be old, frail and posing no threat to them, or they could get incredibly unlucky. Again. It was a bad landing. Without Granny to steady them, they were flimsy as rose petals, each of them going a different way. Despite Betty's hope for a quiet entrance, Charlie squealed, Fliss yelped, and even she gave an oof as she landed on her bottom on a freezing stone floor. It was dim, lit only by the glow of some outside beacon filtering in from a high barred window. Straight away, Betty was uneasy. This was not like the other cells. Though it shared the same freezing stone walls, it was half the size of Colton's. Unlike the glimpse they'd had of Colton's door, the one to this cell was of solid wood with an eye-level hatch that could only be opened from the other side. This, Betty thought, was not a good sign. The next thing she noticed, as the three of them clambered to their feet, was the stench. It was like being walloped in the nose with a sack of stewed cabbages, though strangely there was no sign of a prisoner. There was no bed, just a heap of old sacks thrown in a corner. In the other corner was a bucket, which Fliss had landed next to. As she stood up, she peered into it and made a retching sound. It was then, too late that Betty saw the figure rising from the sacking just beyond Charlie, a hulking giant of a man. Charlie! She made a grab for her sister, who was still clutching the travelling bag and oblivious to the movement behind her. The prisoner was surprisingly quick for someone so large. He lunged at Charlie, seizing her arm. His meaty fist was almost the size of his head, which was bald as a beetle. Charlie mewled like a captured kitten. What have we got here, then? His voice was menacing. Wasn't expecting company in solitary. Solitary confinement. Betty's worry was crystallising into dread. The last thing they needed. Not only were they dealing with a criminal, but an incredibly dangerous one. Ouch! You're hurting me! Charlie complained. She gave Betty a wounded look. Why'd you tell me to bring us here? I didn't, Betty said tightly. She was so horrified she could barely get the words out. I said 513, not 531. You muddled it up. Lucky me, the prisoner said. That still doesn't explain how you got in here. He gave Charlie a jerk. Talk. We're ghosts, Charlie said, recovering from her shock a little. And now you've seen us, we'll haunt you forever. 
The prisoner guffawed. Nice try, but I've never heard of ghosts tripping over themselves and making such a racket. That's because we're new at it, Charlie persisted. We died, um, recently. We're still learning. The prisoner leered down at her, grinning. The inside of his mouth was like a chessboard, with black gaps where half his teeth were missing. A ghost could get through a locked door, he said, but you're as real as I am, pumpkin. He tightened his hold on Charlie's arm. Let her go, Betty said, screwing up her courage. She stepped towards Charlie, holding out her hand. Perhaps if she could grab Charlie and Fliss at once, Charlie might be able to use the bag to get them out of here. Please, this is just a silly mistake and we shouldn't be here. Her pleas went ignored. Prisoner 513, you say? He narrowed his eyes. What would three young ladies want with him? Three young ladies who can appear from out of nowhere. See, I'm getting a whiff of witchcraft or magic or sorcery, whatever you call it. No one answered. Betty was frozen. Charlie was squirming in the man's grip, and Fliss had backed up against the wall. To Betty's relief, the prisoner released Charlie. The relief didn't last, however, for his next move was to snatch the travelling bag from Charlie's hand. Oi! Charlie grabbed at the bag, but he held it out of her reach. What's in here, then? Something you're bringing to Colton? He poured inside it with his beefy hand. Give it! It's mine! Charlie raged, and she aimed a swift kick at the man's shins. He swatted her like she was a gnat, and she toppled backwards, plopping onto the lumpy sacking. Nothing in it, he said in disgust after rummaging through, and even checking the small pocket sewn in the lining. Betty saw his suspicion deepening, and the knot of dread inside her tightened. She couldn't bear to consider what this man would be prepared to do to escape, but one thing was certain. If he figured out the bag's secret, the girls would be in grave danger. Why would you be carrying an empty bag, eh? His eyes narrowed. This how you got in here? Is it a portal or something? He held the bag out in front of him, fitting it over his huge foot like an ugly, misshapen slipper. He looked ridiculous, almost funny, but Betty wasn't fooled. Everything about him oozed menace. It's... it's just a bag, she muttered. She gave Charlie a warning look to keep quiet as he continued to puzzle over the bag and allowed herself to relax slightly. Only they knew its secret, and Charlie was the only one who could make the bag work. If they could convince the prisoner that it was worthless, then all they needed was a moment's distraction so they could escape. He shook it again, losing interest, but Betty sensed he wasn't ready to give it back to them just yet. If you must know, we needed it to take something out of the prison, she said. What? he asked, glowering at her. I... I don't know. We're doing a favour for someone. They said it was best we didn't know about the, um, item beforehand. Hmm. She waited, unsure what the noise meant. You still haven't explained how you got in here, he said. I know I'm not dreaming, and I reckon if you got in, you know how to get out. All right. Betty opened her eyes wide and made her bottom lip tremble. It wasn't hard. She was already trembling a bit under the man's scrutiny. He really did look mean. Give me the bag and I'll tell you, but you must promise to let us go unharmed. The prisoner grinned his broken grin at her. 
Oh, I promise, he said in a sugary voice that managed to sound sinister. He tossed the bag, which Betty missed. It landed with a soft whomp at her feet. She picked it up, glancing at Fliss. Her elder sister was nibbling her lip, but she caught Betty's look and crept away from the wall towards her. Charlie, come here, Poppet, Betty said, trying to sound casual. Charlie got up from the sacking, but as she went to pass the prisoner, he clamped his hand roughly on her shoulder. How about the little one stays here, he said in the same honeyed tone, just till you've told me. Fine, said Betty in a choked voice that made it clear it was not at all fine, but before she could say anything else, Charlie turned her head and sank her teeth into the meaty hand. Now, Betty yelled as the prisoner bellowed in pain. He shook Charlie off, and she shot across to Betty, seizing the bag. Not so fast, you little savage, he yelled, nursing his bitten fingers. For a moment, Betty thought they had got away with it, but as Charlie flipped the bag inside out, shouting, Prisoner 513! Prisoner 531 lunged at them, his eyes bulging with rage. Charlie began to yell. The whooshing this time made Betty feel twice as giddy, her tummy turning somersaults as the stale prison air blasted past her nose. She squeezed her eyes shut, feeling the ground fall away from her, knowing she would never, ever get used to this feeling. She was aware of Charlie still shrieking, and all the while the same thought chanted in her head, I wish we'd never left the poacher's pocket, I wish we'd never left the poacher's pocket. They landed in Colton's cell in a scatter of bumps. Betty barely hit the ground before she was scrambling over to Charlie to clap her hand over her sister's mouth. It was too late, however, for their noise had already disrupted the peace. In the corridors came sounds of beds creaking and muttering, and finally someone bellowed, Who was that? Screaming like a little girl. Keep your nightmares to yourself. Colton shot up in bed like the sheets were on fire. He shook himself from sleep, gaping as he stared past Fliss to the corner where Betty's own gaze was fixed. She'd known what she would see before they even arrived. There, motionless on the floor, lay prisoner 531. Colton's expression wavered between relief and fear. Why don't you make a bit more noise, he said sarcastically, and I hope you've got a really, really good reason for bringing Jared along. It was an accident. Betty hissed as the murmuring in the corridor quietened. The other prisoners were beginning to settle. We ended up in the wrong cell and he grabbed Charlie as we escaped. She could barely believe the disaster unfolding around them and fear was making it hard to think clearly. They had to get Colton out before Jared came round, but once he did, he wasn't likely to sit quietly in Colton's cell until morning. The alarm would be raised and all of Crowstone would be swarming with warders looking for Colton, looking for them, unless Betty could think of a solution. Fliss poked the unmoving prisoner with her toe. He didn't budge. He's knocked out, she said, pointing to an egg-sized bump on his shiny forehead. He must have hit his head. Finally some luck, Betty muttered. Luck? Colton was incredulous. Luck? One of the most feared prisoners is here in my cell. How is that lucky? It was the first time Betty had seen him properly rattled, and it was infectious, sending her own nerves skittering into the dark corners of the cell. Being here, surrounded by dangerous criminals, was nothing like talking about it. 
was terrifying, and she was beginning to wish she had listened to Fliss and thought of another plan. I didn't mean that he's here. That's rotten luck. I meant that he's out cold. We're the Widdershins, said Fliss. We know enough about bad luck to recognise good luck. Trust me. Betty glanced around. Even though she and Fliss had viewed the cell secretly through the mirror, being in it felt far worse than she had expected. It was so cold and lacking in comfort that she wondered how Colton hadn't gone mad. Living in these conditions, especially if he was innocent, must be horrifying. What are we waiting for? Colton snapped. Let's go! Wait, said Betty. How often do the warders look in? Every couple of hours, why? Betty stared at the growing bump on Jared's head. They had got this far. Now she needed to make sure Jared couldn't mess things up further. Getting him back to his own cell wasn't something she was prepared to risk, but perhaps there was something they could do. A plan was forming in her mind, inspired by what Fingerty had told her. Betty, Fliss said uneasy, you've got that look on your face, the one that usually means you're thinking up trouble. Distraction, Betty whispered. Colton huffed out an impatient breath. Eh? Charlie fidgeted, a hand darting under her coat like she had an itch. Something about the movement registered in Betty's mind, but she was too busy thinking. If the warders come round on a check and see your cell empty, they'll send out search parties. But if we leave Jared here, the warders might think it's you. It'll buy us more time until morning. Won't work, Colton said, his voice flat. He'll start hollering the moment he comes round. The warders will hear and come immediately. Not if we tie him up, said Betty. Chapter 14 Escape Tie him up? Colton gave a hollow chuckle. You're just like your granny, you know that. Betty's right, said Fliss, finally recovering her wits. Your chances are better if we can delay the warders realising you're gone. And if they notice Jared's missing, at least they'll be searching for him and not you. Then let's hurry. We don't know how long we've got before he comes round, said Colton. He stepped around the unconscious Jared, watching him like he was a coiled snake ready to bite. We should lift him on the bed like he's sleeping, said Betty. Her knees were shaking. There was nothing she wanted to do less than approach the meaty figure, let alone touch it. However, the idea of him grabbing any of them the way he'd grabbed Charlie was driving her forward, forcing her to act. They'd caught Jared off guard once. She doubted they'd get the same chance twice. After he's tied up, Colton replied. Someone in another cell along the corridor coughed, then a voice grumbled. Who's whispering to themselves? Pack it in! Someone else laughed, low and mean. Maybe it's 513 crying in his sleep again. Crying in his sleep? Betty glanced at Colton, but he avoided her eyes, a muscle in his jaw twitching. When she'd first met him, cocky and uncooperative in the visiting room, she couldn't have imagined him crying into his pillow. Seeing him here, afraid, changed things. For the first time, she cared that Colton was getting out. She darted over to the bed, grabbing the sheets. She handed the corner of one to Colton and another to Fliss. Quickly, tear this into strips! She took another corner and began to pull at the worn edges. 
With Fliss tugging one side of the sheet and Betty gripping the other, they tore a long strip as thick as Jared's arm, wincing as the fabric cut into their palms. Colton tore two more, grimacing. We need to bind his hands, knees and ankles, as well as gagging him, he said. He worked quickly, his eyes never leaving Jared. Next to the older, powerfully built man, he looked much younger. Betty raised an eyebrow. That's thorough. Hey, this was your bright idea, Colton snapped. He kneeled at Jared's side, his nostrils flaring with heavy breaths. He touched Jared's chest softly, then prodded harder when there was no response. Is he really dangerous? Charlie asked, backing away a little. Colton nodded grimly. Betty looked up. Dare she ask exactly what Jared was capable of? No, she decided. There was no point in scaring them all further, although her imagination was unhelpfully making terrible suggestions, and not just about the prisoner who was unconscious. More dangerous than you? Colton glared at her. Yes. Suddenly, Charlie swooped on something glinting on the stone floor. My tooth! You knocked a tooth out when you landed? Colton asked, surprisingly concerned. Charlie shook her head, pocketing it. No, I just carry it with me. It must have fallen out of my pocket when I landed. I call it Peg. Right. Colton looked slightly mystified, then shook himself. Let's do his legs first. He took a length of the sheet and wound it round Jared's ankles before tying a firm knot at the back. Is that too tight? Fliss asked. Nope, he'll be furious about this. Colton gave a mirthless chuckle. You don't want to see him mad. You really don't. Hopefully we won't have to, said Betty, but the sheen of perspiration on Colton's forehead was making her twitchy. How had he coped in here all this time? Already she felt as though the tiny space was closing in, becoming airless. She couldn't wait to get out. Roll him onto his front. It's best his hands are tied behind him. In the corridor, the muttering had become a drone of voices that Betty had been able to tune out. But now it was getting louder, more insistent. The prisoners knew there was something going on. Doors began to rattle. Hurry, said Colton. Their noise will bring the warders. They crouched beside the unmoving Jared, grabbing handfuls of clothing. They heaved, grunting with the effort. It's like trying to shift a felled tree, Fliss gasped, as eventually they manoeuvred him onto his side. Now, set him down gently on his front. Colton warned. They began to turn him, but before Betty knew it, Jared's weight pulled him forward and he landed heavily like a slab of meat. Colton rolled his eyes. If that's your idea of gentle, I'd hate to see rough. Fliss gagged, covering her nose as a smell of stale sweat wafted up from Jared. Colton smirked. That's prison for you, princess. It ain't pretty. Fliss glared at him. I can see that for myself. To Betty's surprise, she grabbed Jared's hands and held them together as Colton twisted another piece of the sheet tightly around Jared's wrists. All three of them jumped as his thick, sausage-like fingers twitched, then curled. Colton reared back, dropping the sheet. The hands slowly moved, forming a fist, before relaxing and becoming limp again. Colton crawled forward warily. We don't have much time. He'll come round soon. Want me to bash him over the head? Charlie asked. She looked round, searching for a suitable weapon. No, Fliss said, shocked. 
Charlie shrugged, looking suspiciously like she was enjoying the drama. Betty, on the other hand, was not. She was starting to wonder whether adventures agreed with her at all. She felt neither bold nor brave. Colton looped the sheet round Jared's wrists again, knotting it tight. Betty slid a length of sheet just above Jared's knees. He let out a low moan. Forget his knees, Colton said shakily. Let's get him on the bed before he wakes. Betty held up the final rag. Mustn't forget the most important one. She jammed it between Jared's teeth, tying it behind his head. With that, the three of them heaved Jared onto his back again with difficulty, then got into position around him. Lift, Colton said through gritted teeth. The murmuring of the other prisoners swelled around them, becoming a low chant. Colton, Colton, Colton! Lift, Colton repeated, and somehow, with the chanting in their ears, their rising panic lent them strength, and they threw Jared on the narrow bed. His eyes flew open as he landed. Fliss picked up the rest of the sheet from the floor and tossed it over him. He writhed underneath it, but the bindings held firm. The clang of a door echoed through the corridors. The warders were coming. Colton turned to Betty, wide-eyed. Now can we go? Gladly, Betty answered, trying to organise her thoughts over the din of prisoners' voices. The last thing she wanted was Colton and Charlie and the bag getting separated from her and Fliss. Colton, you hold on to Fliss, then I'll link arms with Fliss and Charlie can go on the end so she has an arm free to work the bag. You're letting the kid use the bag? Colton asked in astonishment. It has to be her. So that's why you don't want me holding on to Charlie, said Colton slowly, in case I let go of Fliss. Right. Betty answered bluntly. You haven't earned our trust yet. Maybe that's about to change, but for now I'll stick with being careful. Privately, she wondered whether they should have insisted Colton was tied up too, but they hadn't the time now the warders were coming. And though she was unsure of Colton, she didn't feel the same threat from him as she did oozing from Jared. She hoped she wasn't wrong. The other prisoners' voices were belting out Colton's name now, loud as they could, and so fast there was barely a breath between the words. Colton! 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 Then it broke, giving way to loud jeers. Sharp, authoritative voices rang out across the prisoners' burble. The warders, Colton whispered. They're here. Betty? Charlie's voice was panicked. Get in line, Betty instructed. But Betty, I've lost Hoppet. Then he'll have to stay lost, said Betty in exasperation, bundling Charlie into place. Her little sister's fidgeting made sense now. I can't believe you brought that rat with you. I told you to get rid of it. I didn't mean to. He was in my pocket, Charlie protested. He can't sleep otherwise. They couldn't dash their escape for a silly rat. Everyone ready, Betty said abruptly. Charlie, take us to lament. Charlie's bottom lip wobbled. Not without Hoppet. We can't leave him in this awful place. I'm sure he'll be right at home, said Colton dryly. Quickly, Charlie, Fliss urged. The bag. Charlie's lips stopped quivering and began to jut obstinately. I said no, we have to look for him. She began to bend down, but Betty took her arm firmly. No, Charlie, we leave now. We can't let the warders find us. Look, Fliss gasped, nodding to the bed. There, on the sheet covering Jared, a small dark shape was scuttling along, sniffing interestedly at the sweaty bulk underneath. Hop it, 
Charlie exclaimed. She tried to squirm away, but Betty held her fast. Something was happening. Jared shifted under the sheet, groaning like an angry bull. Through the cell door bars came the glow of an approaching lantern. We have to go, Betty whispered desperately. No, Charlie thrashed, but there was no way Betty was letting her near Jared, who was now grunting and writhing. For crow's sake! Colton broke away from Fliss and lunged for the rat, just as the creature vanished into a dip in the sheet between Jared's knees. Got it! He grimaced in disgust, but with those words, Jared's thighs snapped shut, trapping Colton's hand. Colton's eyes widened with shock as he tried to pull himself free, but he was no match for Jared. He was stuck like a fox in a trap. Footsteps scuffed the stone corridor, closer still, lamplight glowing brighter. Colton wrenched at his hand again, but Betty knew from his expression there was no way Jared was letting go, at least not in time. Grab him, she yelled to Fliss, then to Charlie, go, for crow's sake, go! And as Fliss lunged for Colton, Charlie plunged her hand into the travelling bag. Lament! They landed on soft, damp grass that smelled of sea salt and earth. Betty's legs crumpled beneath her, and her arms were yanked in both directions, forcing her to release Fliss and Charlie. She sank to her knees, feeling wetness seep through to her skin. Her relief at escaping was crushed by dread. The warders would know now that Colton was gone. They should have just left immediately. A bellowing Jared signalling the escape from the confines of a cell was much better than a broken-out Jared, even if he was tied up. Betty dragged herself up, her eyes everywhere, anxious for her sisters. A small copse of trees surrounded them. Charlie had landed neatly as a cat and was staring round wide-eyed and her hair more like a bramble bush than ever. Betty's eyes rested on Jared, who was lying face down, squirming. Angry grunts came from behind the gag as he struggled against his constraints. Fear prickled her skin like icy raindrops. They had tied him tightly enough, hadn't they? A short distance away, Fliss had landed on top of Colton in a tangled heap. And there I was thinking you didn't like me, said Colton. You wish, Fliss growled, but the colour in her cheeks deepened. She rolled off him, flicking her hair in his face. Colton grunted as he clambered to his feet. He cast a wary glance at Jared, then stared up at the star-sprinkled sky, his eyes dancing in the moonlight. Faint squeaks came from his outstretched hand, but Colton was too entranced with his new freedom to notice he was still holding Charlie's squirming rat. It's so big, he murmured at last. So vast. I'd forgotten how huge the world was outside of the prison walls. Better make sure you don't end up back on the wrong side of them then, Betty retorted. Her eyes darted across the wide, flat expanse of lament. All she could see of mainland crowstone were gossamer threads of light in the distance. She had only been to lament twice before, to lay flowers and feathers on her grandfather's and mother's graves. It was the farthest she had ever been from home. If the escape had gone smoothly, Betty would have been thrilled by this, but now the thought of home appealed more than she wanted to admit. The only excitement she felt was for what Colton was about to reveal. A blast of freezing wind blew in her face. She remembered now how open and flat the land on Lament was, how little shelter there was. It was so empty and mournful here. 
When they were younger, Fliss had wanted to continue bringing flowers to Mother's grave, but Granny had discouraged them. Better to remember her as she was, in here, she'd said, tapping her head, rather than remind yourselves of where she is now. Fliss, Charlie whined, pressing into her. I know this is an adventure, but does it have to be so cold? Fliss pulled her younger sister closer, though she was shivering herself. Betty stepped in front of them. We won't be here much longer, Charlie, she said, looking at Colton pointedly. Well, we got you out. Now it's your turn. Tell us how to break the curse. Colton turned to look at her, and his expression changed, becoming uncomfortable. He lowered his gaze, shifting from one foot to the other. Already, Betty knew with a sinking feeling that she was not going to like whatever she was about to hear. Soon, I still need your help. Betty's eyes narrowed to slits the size of rice grains. Why was he stalling after all they'd just been through? She stalked over to him, temper flaring. You said once we got you out of the prison, you could do the rest. That was the deal. There's a boat hidden in one of the caves, Colton said. He looked up at the glittering stars, then across the marshes to the lights on the mainland. I thought I'd be able to get my bearings, but... He's struggling with the directions. Betty thought. It wasn't surprising. She had heard that long spells in small places could do strange things to the mind. Even Betty, who'd spent hours studying all her maps, was finding it more difficult to navigate than she expected now she was here. If she hadn't been so annoyed, she might have felt a pang of pity for him. But the thought of the curse pushed her sympathy aside as her earlier doubts niggled. How much did Colton really know? Can you tell us how to break this curse or not? Fliss asked stonily, evidently thinking the same. Or are you just stringing us along? Colton met her eyes for a second, then broke away. Get me to the caves, he muttered. Then I'll tell you everything I know. You were supposed to tell us now, Betty said. You broke your word. Why should we do anything else for you? Fliss added. Because if we don't, we'll have wasted our time. Betty said in a hard voice. It was an unbearable thought to have risked so much for nothing. If Colton didn't give them the answers they needed, it was back to grovelling to Fingerty, which held no guarantees either. Charlie marched up to Colton, glaring with as much disdain as she could muster. She held out her hand. My rat, she said icily. Oh, Colton was shamefaced as he handed back the wriggling brown creature. Here, I wasn't planning on keeping it. Ha, said Charlie, pocketing Hoppet. So you ain't a thief then, just a liar. She turned on her heel and rejoined her sisters. We'll get you to the caves, said Betty. Then you tell us, no more stalling. What do we do about Jared, though? Fliss asked, jerking her head back over her shoulder. Leave him there for the warders to find. Betty glanced back at the copse of trees behind where they had landed. She stiffened, scouring the ground. We might not have to worry about that, she whispered. A short way in front of them, squelched into the mud, was a torn piece of rag, its loose end fluttering like it was waving cheerily. Jared, however, was gone. Chapter 15 the Island of the Dead. 
Betty's stomach felt like a pancake being flipped. Is that one of his bindings? Colton gulped. Sheets must have been weaker than we thought. Betty's eyes darted between the trees, but the branches created shadows that the moonlight couldn't reach. With Jared missing, she suddenly felt like an insect being watched by a hungry spider, a spider in a dark corner hidden from sight. He knows about the bag, she thought. Would he try to get it? The fact he'd vanished reassured her slightly, but she was still jittery. Jared could be too busy taking his chance to escape to worry about them, but who knew the dark workings of his mind? We need to move, she managed to say. Find this cave so we can do what we need to and get off this awful island. Can we use the bag? Fliss asked quietly. Best not, Colton said gruffly. If the tide is in, half the cave will be underwater. It's better we go on foot quietly and carefully, especially with Jared on the loose. His forehead creased. For all we know... He could try to make it to the caves himself. Which ones? Betty asked urgently. She glanced back at Crowstone, then across at Repent, trying to picture her maps in her head. There are caves all over these islands. The Three Widows, said Colton. Some of the prisoners used to talk about a boat and supplies being hidden and joke about using it as a getaway. The trouble for them was they had no way of getting out of the prison and across to Lament. She nodded. I've seen them on maps. Let's go. They began walking, Betty in the lead with her two large boots rubbing. Colton followed behind with Fliss and Charlie. Where do you think Jared went? Betty asked, her breath misted in front of her. Could he have rolled out of the way and hidden somewhere? Probably. Colton's mouth pressed into a grim line. With one of his ties broken, it's only a matter of time until he snaps the rest. Dread curdled in Betty's stomach. Again, she wondered what he was capable of, and it was only the presence of Charlie that stopped her from asking. Let's just hope it's the warders who find him first. Colton glanced about them nervously. Aside from us, would there be anyone else on Lament now? Betty shook her head. Not even the gravediggers would be here in the middle of the night. We're the only people here. She glanced at Charlie, lowering her voice. The only living ones, anyway. They walked faster, spurred on by urgency. Every so often, Betty turned to check Fliss and Charlie were near. She had half expected one or both of them to be in tears by now, but Fliss's face was steely and alert, and Charlie seemed more concerned with checking Hoppet was still in her pocket. She felt a rush of affection for them both. In all her dreams of adventure, she'd imagined herself alone and independent, needing no one. Now it was happening, she couldn't help feeling glad they were in it together. Underfoot, the waterlogged grass gave way to freshly turned soil with smaller, narrow paths of grass between them. In some places, the mounds had flattened and become grassy. On each of them was a small pile of stones. Some had toppled over with time. Graves, said Colton, stooping to pick up a fallen stone. He placed it back on the nearest grave, then began to pick his way through them. Betty followed, her skin prickling. She couldn't help being reminded of the stones falling from the prison tower. Her eyes skimmed over the rocky heaps uneasily. She had always known about the piles of stones, or cairns as they were called, on the graves after a burial, but this was the first time she had made the connection to the Widdishin's curse. In both cases, the stones were a marker of death.
I don't like this, said Fliss from behind. She made the sign of the crow hurriedly. It feels wrong to be walking over the graves. We're not, Colton replied. We're walking between them. They're not going to hurt you. I know that. I just... I don't like the idea of it. You mean you've never walked through a graveyard in the dead... Uh, sorry, bad choice of word. Of night before, he smirked. Where's your sense of adventure? Not here, clearly. Don't worry, princess. You'll soon be back in your palace and all this will seem like a bad dream. You've obviously never been to the poacher's pocket, said Betty, torn between sticking up for her sister and being mildly fascinated at Colton poking fun at her. Her prettiness didn't seem to affect him as it did other young men who simpered when she looked their way. But then she supposed Colton had bigger concerns. It's no palace, that's for sure. Depends on your idea of riches, said Colton, the humour leaving his voice. A home and a family to go back to. That's enough for some folk. Betty didn't answer. She didn't want to know about Colton's life or family, not if it meant feeling sorry for him. All she wanted was to find out what he knew and never set eyes on him again. So when Fliss predictably began to ask, she cut across her. Wouldn't it be better to keep to the edges of the graveyard? There's more shelter, trees and bushes we could hide behind if Jared shows up. Out here he'd see us straight away. And we'd see him straight away if he came at us, Colton replied. Besides, all those hiding places, they could just as easily be hiding him. It was an eerie thought. They hurried on silently, past graves and an endless landscape of stones. Betty glanced at the low wall dividing the graveyard. She had never walked on this side before, where people from Torment were buried. Those from mainland Crowstone were allowed proper headstones and decorations, but the graves this side were only marked by cairns. After all her years of wanting to tread new ground, now she was on it, she felt out of her depth. Imagining adventures was nothing like living them, especially with villains like Jared in the shadows, and this was only the start. What dangers would they need to face to actually break the curse? After a while, she stopped looking directly at the stones, concentrating instead on the grass under her feet. This way, it was easier to imagine that the cairns were other, less threatening things, such as piles of balled-up socks or clusters of mushrooms. I'm hungry, Charlie said suddenly, and cold. I want my bed, and I want Granny. She sniffed loudly, tugging at Fliss's arm. This isn't how an adventure should feel. Privately, Betty agreed, but they were so close now. Once Colton got to his stupid boat and they got their answer, this awful part would end, and they could concentrate on changing their futures. It's nearly over now, she murmured. You've been so brave, Charlie. That's right, Fliss soothed, glancing warily about. We can go home soon. Colton turned back to Charlie, touching her shoulder. There should be food in the caves. Charlie looked instantly more cheerful. I want toast, she declared. Hot, thick toast, all dripping with butter. Colton chuckled, shaking his head. It'll be stuff that keeps, salted fish or meat. Charlie was thoughtful for a moment. Do rats eat fish? He pretended to look surprised. Are you a rat, then? Charlie giggled before remembering she was supposed to be cross. Betty repositioned herself between them, frowning. 
She was unable to tell whether his kindness towards the little girl was genuine or whether he had his eye on the travelling bag. Either way, it was safer to put some distance between them. They were past the graveyard now, only spongy grass beneath their boots. Ahead, Colton slowed. A chilly breeze hit Betty in the face, and then she saw that the land ahead dropped away. Beyond that, she spied a tiny lone light out on the water, perhaps a wisp, perhaps a hopeful fisherman. We've reached the edge of the island, said Colton. How far are the caves now? Betty checked the position of Crowstone Tower again. According to the maps I've seen, the three widows are north, so they should be more or less below us on the cliff face. We just need to find the steps down. Shivering, they scouted the overlook. After a couple of minutes, Betty began doubting herself and wondering about rock falls that might have left the steps ruined. She neared the land's edge, Fliss holding on tightly to Charlie behind. She could just make out a set of crude, chunky steps carved into the rocky surface. Here! Are we supposed to get down those in one piece? Fliss asked. There's nothing to hold on to. Betty stepped down, one hand on the crumbling edge. There are roots and rocks we can grab. We should hold on to each other, too. Once they were on the steps, it wasn't as bad as Betty had feared. Colton went first, with Betty next. Charlie came after, one hand in Betty's and the other held by Fliss. The steps were steep but wide. Soon they got into a steady rhythm, going down, 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 and Betty welcomed each step closer to the bottom, away from the harsh wind. They were about halfway down when the ground crumbled under her feet. Charlie squealed, fingers gripping as Betty skidded. A vision of the cliffs rushing past her nose flashed through her mind as she imagined the three of them being pulled over. Colton flung his hand out, grabbing her wrist. He hauled her back with a grunt, tight against the cliff face. No one spoke, only waited for her to catch her breath before moving on in silence. Down, 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 like it would never end, like a clock that just went on ticking. And then, finally... They were there, crunching shingle at their feet, water lapping over rock pools ahead, and a series of black shapes yawning like mouths before them. There they are, she murmured, the three widows. Fliss stared into the black caverns doubtfully. Could they sound any more ominous? Charlie tugged at Betty's sleeve. What's ominous? It means a bit gloomy, said Betty. The caverns were certainly that, but a thrill went through her at the sight of them. Colton began picking his way over the shingle. Wordlessly, the girls followed, briny wind whipping through their hair. The beach became coarser, and in places there were chunks of broken wood and smashed china. It made Betty think of shipwrecks, an idea that had always excited her before. That seemed foolish now. The scattered debris was real maybe all that survived of someone else's adventure that had gone terribly wrong. They crunched past the first two caves. A glimpse into their dark insides gave nothing away. Colton continued to the final cave, vanishing inside. The sisters ducked in after him out of the brittle wind. They heard scrabbling in the darkness. Then came the sound of a match being struck. A golden glow followed as a candle was lit. Colton loomed before them. 
Beyond him, the cave stretched back. Betty squinted into the gloom, finding a jumble of shapes, wooden crates, bottles, heaps of sacking, and, crucially, a small rowing boat with two jutting oars. Colton went to it, picking off strings of seaweed. He circled it, running his hands over the wood, lifting the candle to inspect it. It's actually here. He rubbed a hand over his chin, his voice light with relief. And in working order. Good. You weren't certain it would be? Betty asked, unsettled. It seemed too huge a thing to risk after all they'd been through to get here. A shadow flickered across Colton's face. He didn't answer. Instead, rummaging through the crates, he threw a wrap of paper to Charlie. Here. Charlie unfolded it, sniffing like a puppy before popping something dried into her mouth. She chewed uncertainly, then nodded and tucked the rest in her pocket. Betty glanced at the cave's entrance. How far behind them were the warders, and where was Jared? Enough with the picnic, she said. We got you to the boat, so out with it. How do we break the curse? Colton stiffened, his back to them. Slowly, he straightened up from the crates and turned to them with a shaky breath. And in that one breath, Betty knew. I'm sorry, he said quietly. I... I lied to you. I don't know how to break it. Betty felt herself sway and reached out to grab a rocky ledge for support. Waves crashed in the distance, and it was the sound of all her hopes being dashed against the rocks. The cave closed in, tightening the world around her. All she had hoped for, gone. Her dreams shattered for the second time in as many days. She had put her sister's lives in danger and broken two prisoners out of a high-security jail, and for what? Nothing except to be used and become a criminal herself. You... You don't know anything, she asked. She felt hollow, dizzy, like a low wave could wash her off her feet. She'd had her doubts about Colton, but she had wanted so badly to believe him. There was nowhere to go from here except back to the start to try to find another way. Already she didn't know if she had the strength or whether she could harness the swirling rage within her. She released the ledge and stepped towards Colton unsteadily, her hands tightening into fists. No wonder Granny had never taken the risk to get him out. She must have been tempted, but never quite convinced enough. She'd been wiser than Betty. Much wiser. I'm sorry, he said again, holding up his hands in what was meant to be a calming gesture. It enraged Betty all the more. Don't you dare apologise, she cried. Don't you know what we've just done for you? What we risked? A sob of anger and frustration forced its way into her voice, choking her. And for what? We're still stuck in Crowstone as much as we ever were. We helped you for nothing. Fliss appeared at her side, ashen-faced. All of it. Lies. Her voice was cold, unfliss-like. Under the bubbling anger, Betty could hear hurt and disappointment. Shame on you! You haven't a shred of honour! Colton hung his head, his lips moving soundlessly. What did you say? Betty demanded. I said it wasn't for nothing. Colton finally met her gaze. I know what you risked to get me out, 
and I wish I could repay you. I honestly do. Honest? Betty scoffed. You wouldn't know honesty if it bit you on the nose. You're a lying, cheating... Lying cheat, Charlie put in. You saw what it was like in there, Colton cried. His eyes were wild, haunted. You think it's tough being stuck in Crowstone? Try being locked in a tiny, stinking cell day in, day out, bitten by fleas existing on scraps? Then you'd know what it's really like to be trapped. He shook his head bitterly. Two years of my life wasted in that, that sewer. And the worst thing, I shouldn't have been in there in the first place. How can you expect us to believe you're innocent now? Fliss asked, aghast. You've lied about everything else. One lie doesn't mean everything else was. Colton stepped towards Fliss. What, you've never told a lie? He threw up his hands as if trying to rid himself of frustration. What I did wasn't right, and I do wish I could help you, whatever you might think of me. Not a lot, Betty interrupted, the familiar feeling of betrayal hooking its claws in. How could I have trusted him? But I lied because I had to. I saw a chance and I took it. I reckon any of you would have done the same. He gave a thin, tired smile. You say I've no honour, but I'm honouring my vow to get far, far away from this place and never set eyes on Crowstone again. We all do what we need to, Princess. There's no room for honour in this world. Not when it comes to looking after yourself. Perhaps not for you, Fliss said softly. But that's not what I believe. I won't. Colton's eyes glinted in the darkness. Maybe one day you'll change your mind. Or maybe you will, Fliss replied. A chill wind blew into the cave, creeping into sleeves and around ankles, nipping like a ferret. You know, there was something else about the tower, Colton added, looking wretched. The only other thing I know... Oh, save it! Betty retorted. Like Fliss said, why would we trust another word from you? Fine. It was just that... No, you're right. Fine. He let out a weary sigh. I hope you break the curse. And for what it's worth, I wish you luck. Yes, well, Fliss muttered. If we had any luck, which we don't, we wouldn't wish it back. She rubbed her nose angrily, her eyes shimmering with unshed tears. Betty unclenched her teeth. So what now? You just sail away to a new life. Her voice was bitter. She couldn't quite believe that this was it. The end of the dreams and hopes she'd built up in such a short time. This liar got to leave because of them. Why should he win his freedom when they couldn't? In that moment, she hated him enough to consider anonymously tipping off the warders once they returned. I'm surprised you care enough to ask, he said. We don't. Betty glared at him. I just want an idea of when the warders are likely to catch up with you. That's if you even get past the rocks. She was pleased to see the worry lines on Colton's face deepen. Rocks? Surely you knew? She watched as he hurriedly began loading the boat with sacking and food provisions. His movements were jerky and rushed. I'll take my chances, he muttered, more to himself than to any of the sisters. His face was tight, a muscle in his neck twitched. This whole night, this hasn't gone to plan. How dare you complain, Betty seethed. Because of us, everything has gone to plan for you. It was meant to be easy, Colton shot back. His bravado had deserted him, leaving only a scared boy. 
I had it all figured out until you brought Charlie along. Brought Charlie? Betty snapped. We didn't want to, believe me, but like I said, she's the only one who can work the bag. We'd never have got you out otherwise, Fliss added. Colton whipped to face her, his voice hoarse. I wasn't to know that, was I? Understanding crashed over Betty like a wave. You... You were planning to steal the bag, weren't you? He hesitated, unable to look at either of them. Yes, but that was before. Until tonight, I thought anyone could use it. I didn't know Charlie was the only one of you who could. It's the truth, I swear. Oh! Fliss sniffed, looking outraged. Betty's skin prickled. She wanted to scream at him, to thump him, but her body remained rigid. What a fool she'd been to let herself be taken in when she had seen how badly he wanted to escape. Her own desperation had blinded her to his. Don't pretend you actually care what happens to us. For all we know, you might have thought of making Charlie take you somewhere to save your own skin. He gave a short, choked laugh. I may be a thief and a liar, but I'm not a murderer. I wouldn't make Charlie take me away from Crowstone or any of you. I couldn't. I'll have to take my chances out on the water. Sounds like my kind of plan, a voice growled behind them. Betty spun on her heels, her breath caught in dread. Jared stood a little way into the cave's entrance, one hand clamped over a squirming Charlie's mouth. No, Fliss gasped. He grinned, displaying his checkerboard teeth. Colton stepped forward. You, you can come with me, he said hoarsely. We're leaving the boat together. Just let the girls go. I wasn't talking about the boat, Jared scoffed. I was talking about the bag. <laughs>